All right. Welcome, How to Win in Court Without a Liar. This is Dave Horowitz, and I will be your host this evening. It is June 6th, I believe. Possibly it is. Um, tonight, we are going to be discussing uh, declaratory judgment actions. And uh, give me one second here. Still pulling stuff up. <laughs> Sorry. All right. So, um, again, the topic tonight is uh, declaratory judgment actions, getting your equitable rights recognized and declared. It's basically uh, an affidavit with some, some serious teeth. And uh, it is a way to move these courts into equity, which they don't like. Um, again, uh, Daniel and I are going to be reading a lot tonight. Uh, we're going to be reading the acts, uh, both the Declaratory Judgment Act Federal and the Uniform Declaratory Judgment Act for the states. And uh, we will also be going through the declare, a declaratory judgment action that we created, as well as a uh, brief in support of that action. So, uh, Daniel, you ready? I am, and I'm here. Greetings to you. Hey, all right. So I am going to mute out while you go through and read uh, the federal uh, Declaratory Judgment Act. Okay, well, to start off with, for those that are doing their own research, uh, disclaimer here, one can go on um, YouTube and you can find a set of videos put out by the Federal Judicial Television Network called Federal Jurisdiction. I believe Bruce Markell is the uh, red-headed, bearded fellow that uh, does these presentations and you could comprehend the... Hello? I didn't hear that. Hello, this is Richie Spasato. Hi, greetings. Are you our special speaker tonight? No, I'm not the guest speaker. I'm just... Hi, Ricky. You could just uh, mute out while we, uh, while we do our uh, reading here, and we'll open it up, uh, up to uh, question and answer. So we have um, the Federal Declaratory Judgment Act, of course, is attempting to bring an act in, in federal jurisdiction. And I was suggesting to understand federal jurisdiction, you could type in um, federal jurisdiction, those two words, and look for a YouTube video with a red-headed, uh, red-bearded fellow, Bruce Martell, for the Federal Judicial Television Network. It's a two-part series, dry as can be, where he's teaching federal judges how to clean off their dockets to get cases bumped out of the federal courts to move things along. And so they have this very limited federal jurisdiction that they, uh, they try to maintain. So you have a narrow window of federal opportunity with very specific federal guidelines to be able to maintain a federal de uh, declaratory judgment action. 
Now, as we were speaking, there were some that have said that they felt that they could not get a fair shake in the state court, and they don't feel that. Of course, one of the things that the courts try to avoid is court shopping, and that's why they have these narrow windows. So after you go through the federal um, jurisdiction uh, YouTube video put out by the Federal Television Jurisdiction uh, Judicial Network, excuse me, Federal Television Judicial Network, Federal Judicial Television Network, sorry about that, after you go through that presentation and feel that you can maintain the narrow defined window for federal jurisdiction, you may consider a federal declaratory judgment act, which I'm going to be reading the guidelines. Otherwise, David said he will be taking over and reading the Uniform Declaratory Judgment Act, which was adopted by all the states on a state level as far as the, the pecking order of the courts go. Keeping in mind that each of these courts maintain specific jurisdictional um, elements um, that they describe for resolving issues within their narrowly defined windows. And so with that being said, I will go ahead and start off by reading the Rule 57 uh, of the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure, which is defined declaratory judgment. And these rules govern the procedure for obtaining a declaratory judgment under 28 U.S.C. 2201, which I'll read that next, um, and Rules 38 and 39 govern a demand for a jury trial. The existence of another adequate remedy does not preclude a declaratory judgment that is otherwise appropriate. The court may order a speedy hearing of a declaratory judgment action. And when you hear the state rules, you'll understand that they, on the state declaratory judgment acts, they go to the top of the docket. And uh, in, some, in, in a lot of these situations, the situation is dire and urgent, and that's why declaratory judgment is used uh, for those reasons. The fact that the declaratory judgment may be granted, whether or not further relief is or could be prayed, indicates that declaratory relief is alternative or cumulative and not exclusive or extraordinary. So we're not talking about an extraordinary writ or uh, habeas corpus or quo warranto and what have you. Uh, declaratory judgment is appropriate when it will terminate the controversy given rise to the proceeding. Something very important to identify in your declaratory judgment um, proceeding is that you must have a controversy. It cannot be hypothetical. It has to be actual controversy to which the court can, um, the declaratory judgment can resolve. Uh, inasmuch as it often involves only an issue of law on undisputed or relatively undisputed facts, it operates frequently as a summary proceeding, justifying docketing the case for early hearing as on a motion as provided for in California. And that's the civil code in during 1937, section 1062A, and as well as in Michigan and Kentucky. And if you read it in the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure, they quote those different places where you can see in their codes. But the controversy must necessarily be of a justicable nature. Well, that's why I'm saying not hypothetical. Thus, ex excluding an advisory decree upon a hypothetical state of facts. And they quote the Ashwanda versus Tennessee Valley Authority which is a Supreme Court um, justification there as far as the um, justical nature of, of the action. The existence or non-existence of any right, duty, power, liability, privilege, disability, or immunity, a lot of words there, or of any fact upon which such legal relations depend or of a status may be declared. 
So it can be. So what it's saying there, and I think you might re, it might make it a little bit clearer in the Uniform Declaratory Judgment Act, which David will be reading, is that it can be in the positive or the negative. It can declare in the positive or in the negative uh, the, the uh, any any fact. <clears throat> so the petitioner must have a practical interest in the declaration sought, and all parties having an interest therein or adversely affected must be made parties or be cited. A declaration may not be rendered if a a special statutory proceeding has been provided for the adjudication of some special type of case. But general, hello. I didn't understand. Did I get somebody say something? Okay. A declaration may not be rendered if a special statutory proceeding has been provided for the adjudication of some special type of case. But general, ordinary or extraordinary legal remedies, whether regulated by statute or not, are not deemed special statutory proceedings. When declaratory relief will not be effective in settling the controversy, the court may decline to grant it. But the fact that another remedy would be equally effective affords no ground for declining declaratory relief. So if, they, you know, if, you, if someone says, well, you could have done a habeas corpus, or you could have done a quo warranto, or you could have done, you could have done this, or you could, that's not, that doesn't uh, preclude the declination or the declining of your relief. The demand for relief shall state with precision the declaratory judgment desired, to which may be joined a demand for coercive relief cumulatively or in the alternative, but when coercive relief only is sought but is deemed ungrantable or inappropriate, the court may sua sponte, if it serves a a useful purpose, means on its own motion, sua sponte, grant instead a declaration of rights. And it quotes Hazelbrig versus Kopke a Michigan case. Written instruments, including ordinances and statutes, may be construed before or after breach at the petition of a properly interested party, process being served on the private parties or public officials interested. So it can be worked on the private parties or public officials. In other respects, the Uniform Declaratory Judgment Act affords a guide to the scope and function of the federal act. And it gives you a bunch of cases to uh, to read off there on relation to the Declaratory Judgment Act. So um, going through Title 28, the Declaratory Judgment, and 2201 describes the, the creation of remedy, which is really interesting. That's how the Declaratory Judgment Act is defined in the, in the United States Code in Title 28, the Judiciary Act of the United States Code, the creation of remedy. It says, in a case of actual controversy within its jurisdiction, except with respect to federal taxes and actions brought under Section 7428 of the Internal Revenue Code, which most people on this call would have no interest or um, not be a party to, or proceeding under Section 505 of 1146 of Title 11, once again, nothing having anything to do with any of us, or in any civil action involving anti-dumping or countervailing duty proceeding regarding a class of kind of merchandise of a free trade area country as defined, in the tar- as defined in the Tariff Act, as determined by the administrating authority, any court of the United States on the filing of an appropriate pleading may declare the rights and other legal relations of any interested party seeking such declarations, whether or not further relief is or could be sought. Any such declaration shall have the force and effect of a final judgment or decree and shall be reviewable as such. Another way to put that 
is that your rights and legal relations can be declared. It's going to be binding upon all courts when you read the uh, Act and the, and the Uniform Declaratory Judgment Act also defines this. It's a binding court decision. You don't have to worry about a you know, failure to state a claim upon which, which relief can be granted. You've got the, uh, the judgment from the court. If you, if you have a cause of action declared by the filing of a, of a declaratory judgment act, which is an equitable um, um, act, you'll, you'll hear it when you hear the Uniform Declaratory Judgment Act that David will be reading. Um, you have a declaration and whether or not further relief is or could be sought. Now, what that means there, just to fill you in, is that you can do a declaratory judgment and you can move for an injunction to enjoin party um, for or against an act, or you can go for an award. But you cannot do both in the same proceeding. It has to go one way or the other. And that was found upon um, you know, years of research that we did on the Declaratory Judgment Act. So it has the force and effect of a final judgment, but it is also subject to review like any other judgment. In other words, they didn't let the, the judge play final God. They'll, they'll let it be reviewable by other judges. And um, David, that's pretty much the, uh, the Declaratory Judgment Act of the federal, uh, the federal uh, side of the, as far as what's listed without reading um, a, a federal Declaratory Judgment Act. That pretty much defines the um, federal, De federal Declaratory Judgment Act. The only thing that uh, I would finish reading is, is Title 28, not 2202, which talks about further relief, further necessary or proper relief based on a declaratory judgment or decree may be granted after reasonable notice and hearing against any adverse party whose rights have been determined by such judgment. And that further relief that we are referring to was that either injunction and or award. So once you get a declaratory judgment, you're not required to have to restart up another um, adversarial action or another proceeding or another filing. You can move right into your award and or injunction. It's pretty much the federal side, David. Thank you. Uh, you're welcome. And. Uh, you're right, this is uh, the Uniform Declaratory Judgment Act, which was uh, where the states uh, adopted this. Uh, there's a document out there, it was written in 1922, um, and it starts off with the reasons for its adoption, and I'm going to read that first. All right, the declaratory judgment is a big forward step in administrative justice. Its benefits will not be confined to any class or portion of society. <coughs> Excuse me. Every citizen of the state will enjoy and profit by its good offices. Accordingly, the effort to enact it as a part of the jurisprudence of a state can involve no conflict of political parties, no division of industrial interests. <coughs> Excuse me and no clash of social forces. The present system David, of the corporate... What's that? David, would you prefer... I know that you're having a hard time with your allergies. Would you prefer if I read that for you? Or are you okay? Um, actually, if you could, that'd be great. I'm really having a rough time here. Um, we, we, 
sorry for interrupting. We were talking before the call, and David, that was interacting up, and so I'm, I'm just, if it's just we're reading it and what have you, I'd be happy to. The present system of court procedure has, in certain respects, become antiquated. Antiquated, excuse me. It holds its place in the administration of justice largely on account of a tradition that those things which are ancient must be good. As a matter of fact, the practice of cases in court has stood still for many years while business and social affairs have been progressing. The result has been that a gulf exists between the judicial process and the community interest that it's supposed to serve, and into this gulf have dropped a great many possibilities. For anyone to think that the administration of the law prevailing centuries ago is adequate for the needs of the present is quite as absurd as to indulge the idea that the clothes of the boy can be worn in comfort by the grown man. Today, our courts are operated largely on the fundamental idea of giving to an injured party reparation and redress. Certainly, it is still a primary rule of jurisdiction that until a party has been hurt and has suffered loss, he has no standing in court. This ancient rule of jurisdiction has been found too narrow to meet the requirements of modern social, industrial, and economic conditions. Men ought not be forced to the necessity of encountering damage or assuming ruinous responsibilities before they are permitted to seek and secure a court decision as to their rights and duties. Such a scheme puts a premium upon delinquency and penalties altogether out of harmony with a proper conception of law, order, and justice. It should be the primary purpose of the state to save its citizens from injury, debt, damage, and penalties, and to this end, the highest function of the court ought to be to decide, when possible, the controversies of parties before any loss has been suffered or any offense committed. The declaratory judgment aims at abolishing the rule which limits the work of the courts to a decision which enforces a claim or assesses damage or determines punishment. Declaratory judgment allows parties who are uncertain as to the rights and duties to ask a final ruling from the court as to the legal effect of an act before they have progressed with it to the point where anyone has been injured. The declaratory judgment principle is of Roman origin. It spread over the principal part of the continent continental Europe long before the American colonies became the United States. It has been in effect in Scotland for over three centuries. In England, it has existed since 1858 with ever-broadening scope and increased influence. It is used in the greater part of the British colonies and dominions, including Canada. Experience has demonstrated in the countries where the declaratory judgment procedure has been adopted that its use has resulted in a great saving in actual litigation thereby anticipating those long, bitter, and expensive controversies that, finally, that, excuse me, that follow highly litigated cases for breach of contracts and denial of rights, which can be avoided by the adoption and use of the declaratory judgment principle. That's a mouthful right there. The Declaratory Judgment Act is a development of the old Roman law procedure which allowed a judge to decide in a preliminary way certain questions of law and fact which the parties themselves by agreement or the magistrate at the request of either one of the parties might submit to the judge for decision. The decision had the effect of settling the law as it then stood. The exercise of the declaratory judgment procedure constantly grew and in the Middle Ages the law had so developed that the questions of status and property rights connected therewith 
and that the validity or invalidity of wills or other legal instruments constituted the principal subjects of declaratory actions. In an action for declaratory judgment, the plaintiff asks a declaration that the defendant has no right as opposed to the plaintiff's privilege. That is to say that the plaintiff is under no duty to the defendant or that the plaintiff is under an immunity from any power of or control of the duty of courts. It was only when some wrong had been perpetrated that the common law courts took any judicial notice of the fact. The scope of their judicial functions before the passage of the declaratory acts was entirely curative. The purpose of this act is really to prevent litigation. Under the act, any party to a contract, for instance, may have a judicial construction of the same even before a breach thereof, without undue expense, and at a time when the effect of an adverse decision is not likely to prove disastrous. In truth, the Declaratory Judgments Act is nothing more than a bill to make it possible for a citizen to ascertain what are his rights and what are the rights of others before taking steps which might involve him in costly litigation. The purpose of the act and its effect is to enable the citizen to procure from a court guidance which will keep him out of trouble and to procure that guidance which materially less with material less expensive excuse me with material less expense than he would have to incur if he should wait until the trouble came before having recourse to the courts in order to have recourse to and take advantage of the declaratory judgment procedure it is not requisite that any wrong should have been done or any breach committed it is to prevent and forestall such happenings by declaratory judgment setting forth rights and duties for the guidance of those concerned and indicating the course to be followed that a remedy is provided by the act and thus litigation is avoided the measure is not merely preventative it also interpretive excuse me inter interpretive my gosh it concerns itself only with contracts it concerns itself not only with contracts but with wills and other instruments of writing with matters of governmental regulation such as ordinance as ordinances and the like with respect to titles to property, and particularly with the status of family relations, man and wife, parent and child, guardian and ward, and also with provisions of trust. In all such cases, the Act will be found of benefit. Under the Act, the courts will have power to declare rights, status, and other legal relations, whether or not further relief is or could be demanded, and no judgment will be open to the objection that it will be declaratory. It, it will therefore be binding. In other words, before war is openly declared between parties, the courts may decide that there is no occasion therefore. The Uniform, Acts, Uniform Act permits the court to construe a contract either before or after a breach thereof. In every state of the Union, we have always had bills in chancery to construe wills to perpetuate testimony determine questions of title and the removal of a cloud. The declaratory judgment is but an enlargement in scope and advantage of such proceedings. There is nothing experimental in the Uniform Act. It has been tested and has proved its worth by many years of constant use in the English-speaking courts as well as the courts of some of the countries of continental Europe. It does not take anything away. It does not take anything from the law that exists today. Every right is preserved and will be enforced. 
a declaratory judgment only increases the court's power for good. As stated in the bill itself, this act is declared to be remedial. Its purpose is to settle and to afford relief from uncertainty and insecurity with respect to rights, status, and other legal relations, and is to be liberally construed and administered. The declaratory judgment may be either affirmative or negative in form and effect. It may determine some right, privilege, power, or immunity in the plaintiff, or some duty, no right, liability, or disability in the defendant. The judgment is not based on any wrong already done or any breach committed. It is not required to be executed as it orders nothing to be done. It simply declared, it simply declared rights and duties so that parties may guide themselves in the proper legal road and in fact and in truth avoid litigation. Most men are honest. Lawsuits for the most part arise from honest differences of opinion between parties as to their rights and often arise from honest differences of opinion between their counsel. If the parties could find out their rights before acting, their action generally would conform to their rights. If an attorney had means of ascertaining without waiting for a breach of a contract the rights of his client, his client would be saved loss by acting within his rights. It is to be presumed that each party to a transaction intends to proceed with ordinary, honest, and circumspection. But every party is not and cannot be informed as to his rights as well as his duties. And in the absence of such definite knowledge, grave losses may be and often are incurred. As matters stand today, litigation must await that loss, and there can be no coming into court to secure a ruling as to the status of liability. It often follows that this litigation, when at length it does come, is vindictive and expensive, and that the injurious crimination and recrimination are never forgot, forgiven or forgotten. In many cases, these unfortunate results would be avoided if recourse could be had before such loss occurred and litigation arose to the declaratory judgment procedure. The opportunities for good that, that thus attach to this new procedure are so numerous as not, uh, as not be permit of a full list being attempted. Instances will occur to every practicing lawyer and to such laymen as may have experienced the fearful limitations under which modern America courts labor. In most cases, each party to a transaction wishes to do right and act honestly. If at the outset of a controversy over a jural relation, a judgment could be obtained setting forth rights and duties, everyone would act, would at once abide the decision, and all hostile litigation and bad feeling would be avoided. It is only because parties are now forced to wait until money loss has been suffered or criminal penalties are involved before they're permitted to come into court that so many bitter contests attend proceedings in court. Out of this bitterness resulting from property interest, or personal liability being at stake, we have the practice of cases characterized by ugly charges and countercharges, criminations and recriminations, false witnesses, and perjury. If before injury has been inflicted, the parties could obtain a decision on question and dispute, much of the undesirable features of present-day litigation might be eliminated. The highest function of the law is the preservation of peace. The state serves such purpose poorly when it compels a citizen to wait until a difference as to the construction of a contract has developed into a struggle to secure or save valuable property when it delays a matter of the interpretation of a statute until it involves a fight for liberty. A stitch in time saves nine. 
Nowhere can this honest, um, homely adage be applied to better advantage than in court affairs. Nowhere has its application been not denied except in court. Declaratory judgment is a stitch in time. Would you like me to read the act, David, or do you want to stop for and comment? Uh, you can finish it, and then we'll uh, we can have a little bit of discussion if you'd like after, and then uh, we'll read what we put together. Okay. Well, this is uh, that was all the preface to the act. This is the actual act. This was enacted. Um, there are a few states that did not enact the actual um, Uniform Declaratory Act, but they have statutes um, within their uh, um, scheme that the function as like a declaratory judgment. David, do you have a list of those states that don't that have not adopted it? I do not have it offhand. No, and I believe it's it was only two couple. or three. Yeah, it's just a few. It might it might be as many as five. I don't remember, but you're right. It's just a few. Um, uh, okay. <clears throat> this is in those instances where there's an issue uh, where they don't have an act or such act. Uh, you can use the federal. Right, and and there are, like I said, the ones that have not adopted this specific act have writings within their statutes. So the ones I did research one or two of them in the past, but they have provisions that are similar, but they don't. They have not adopted this specific act from the uh, from the, the you know the Uniform Commission on or the Commission on Uniform State Laws. This specific act was created and then was adopted by most states. So here's the act. Being enacted, Section 1, the scope. Courts of record within their respective jurisdictions shall have power to declare rights, status, and other legal relations whether or not further relief is or could be claimed. No action or proceeding shall be open to objection on the ground that a declaratory judgment or decree is prayed for. The declaration may be either affirmative or negative in form and effect, and such declaration shall have the force and effect of a final judgment or decree. Section 2. Any person interested under a deed, will, written contract, or other writings constituting a contract, or whose rights, status, or other legal relations are affected by a statute, municipal ordinance, contract, or franchise, may have determined any question of construction or validity arising under the instrument, statute, ordinance, contract, or franchise, and obtain a declaration of rights, status, or other legal relations thereunder. Section 3, before breach. A contract may be construed either before or after there has been a breach thereof. Section 4, the executor, etc. Any person interested as through an executor, administrator, trustee, guardian, guardian, or other fiduciary, creditor, devisee, legatee, heir, next of kin, or sesticate trust, in the administration of a trust, or of the estate of a decedent, an infant, lunatic, or insolvent, they have a declaration of rights or legal relations in respect thereto. And they, they, to, to ascertain a class of creditors, devisees, devisees, legatees, heirs, next of kin, or others, or to direct the executors, administrators, or trustees to do or abstain from doing any particular act in their fiduciary capacity, or to determine any question arising in the administration of the estate of trust, including questions of construction of wills and other writings. 
Section 5, enumeration not exclusive. The enumeration in the previous sections, 2, 3, and 4, does not limit or restrict the exercise of the general powers conferred in Section 1 in any proceeding where declaratory relief is sought in which a judgment or decree will, ter will terminate the controversy or remove an uncertainty. So basically, just for at this point in time, explanation it doesn't have to be under those very specific guises of a state will, and it's any proceeding where declaratory relief is sought. So it opens it, broadens it there. Section six, discretionary. The court may refuse to render or enter a declaratory judgment decree where such judgment or decree, if rendered or entered, would not terminate the uncertainty or controversy given rise to the proceedings. So that's the only discretion that the Act um, gives them. Section 7, all orders, judgment, or decrees under this Act may be reviewed as other orders, judgments, and decrees. Section 8, supplemental relief. Further relief based on a declaratory judgment or decree may be granted whenever necessary or proper. The application thereof, therefore, shall be by a petition to a court having jurisdiction to grant the relief. If the application be deemed sufficient, the court shall, on reasonable notice, require any adverse party whose rights have been adjudicated by the declaratory judgment or decree to show cause why further relief should not be granted for, forthwith. Jury trial. When a proceeding under this act involves a determination of an issue of fact, such issue may be tried and determined in the same manner as issues of fact are tried and determined in other civil actions in the court in which the proceeding is pending. Cost. In any proceeding under this act, the court may make such award of cost as may seem equitable and just. Parties. Section 11. When a declaratory relief is sought, all persons shall be made parties who have or claim any interest which would be affected by the declaration, and no declaration shall prejudice the rights of persons not parties to the proceeding. In any proceeding which involves the validity of a municipal ordinance or franchise, such municipality shall be made a party be titled to be heard, and if the statute ordinance or franchise is alleged to be unconstitutional, the Attorney General of the state shall be also served with a copy of the proceeding and be entitled to be heard. Section 12, this act is declared to be remedial. Its purpose is to settle and to afford relief from uncertainty and insecurity with respect to rights, status, and other legal relations, and is to be liberally construed and administered. Section 13, the word person, whenever used in this act, shall be construed to mean any person, partnership, joint stock company, unincorporated association, or society, or municipal or other corporation of any character whatsoever. Section 14, the several sections and provisions of this act, except sections 1 and 2, are hereby declared independent and severable, and the invalidity, if any, of any part or feature thereof shall not affect or render the remainder of the act invalid or inoperative. This, uh, section 15, this act shall be so interpreted and construed as to effectuate its general purpose and to make uniform the law of those states which enact it and to harmonize as far as possible with federal laws and regulations on the subject of declaratory judgments and decrees. This uh, act, uh, section 16, this act may be cited as Uniform Declaratory Judgment Act, and in section 17, this act shall take effect, and I believe that was in 1922. And that, that ends the reading of the Uniform Declaratory Judgment Act. Thank you, Daniel. So now might be a good time where we discuss uh, why or where you would use the federal and or the state. 
um, the uniform or the federal. And um, as far as, well, Daniel and I have been talking and we were just, uh, we were saying that, you know, federal is a little bit harder to, to keep in that jurisdiction. Um, utilizing the state court now in, in a lot of the that uh, that we wrote, you know, that we put this together for have issues with their children being in custody of the state or uh, a custody issue with their ex. And the state courts where they're at are very corrupt. And the reason why we set this one up that we're about to read uh, for federal is because of that uh, is for that reason that those state courts are, are extremely corrupt. Um, and that basically this, uh, that their situations have gotten to the point where moving uh, or removing from state court uh, is the best idea. Uh, although federal would be harder uh, for a declaratory judgment and uh, most often than not if it's, just, if it's an issue I mean, and again, from reading the acts, um, they're preempt. They could be used preemptory. So, if you wanted to have your rights declared that uh, you're not a U.S. citizen, you could do that uh, without having to have an issue at hand. Um, you know, uh, we talk a lot about the people or people uh, <laughs> and that term, and we know we're talking about legal fictions. Um, you know, corporate fictions, persons, statutory entities that were created, uh, basically, and, and uh, have are under the authority of governments uh, other than a man or a woman or their offspring. Anyway, um, Daniel, you you had a warning, right? I had a warning. Yeah. Well, that was yeah, that's sort of a. I was to say, add something to that. You know, the, um, it, it, you know, without an issue at hand, let me qualify that. Um, anybody with an interest under a deed or a written instrument, think about a birth certificate or a social security instrument or um, any other instrument, driver's license. They may have their rights legal relations declared. However, you cannot create a hypothetical scenario to have the courts entertain it. So that is very clear in, the, in both the federal and state. Uh, it can't be hypothetical. So there needs to be an actual controversy. You need to have an actual instrument, an actual, actual event, or, or an actual controversy in order to have the court entertain the Declaratory Judgment Act. I just wanted to qualify that. And the second thing I wanted to qualify is the federal jurisdiction. Um, keep in mind that they have this doctrine uh, that they try to keep away uh, from the federal encroaching upon the state-specific court guidelines, and they want to remand it back to state jurisdiction if it doesn't meet the narrowly defined federal definition. So it has to be, and if you don't, Way, if you don't raise it in your pleading, they're not going to raise it for you, and they're not going to teach you how to correct it. They're just going to bounce it out. And my experience is it will never, ever get to uh, an actual federal judge. It will either get to a law clerk or a magistrate 
and you'll sit there and and um, wrangle um, before you can get your um, your court case into the federal jurisdiction with either of those two um, uh, basically blockers before you can actually get the, get your your court case lodged there where you actually have a court case and you're you're down and you're rolling and ready to go. So understanding federal jurisdiction, if you're attempting to keep it out of the state court, is going to be very important, and that starts with the jurisdiction and venue statement um, of the proceeding and why we are moving in the federal court. What are the what are the reasons why we would be able to maintain, or we at least would, by brief, by um, suggestion, and of course subject to uh, said the limitation of the law clerks and the magistrates and our ability to be able to articulate federal jurisdiction, keep that particular proceeding in the federal courts. I guess that's more of the that would be an articulating that warning. Right. Going back to um, the controversy. Now, if you most people operate their person, you know, within the person, uh, the legal fiction, or attached to it in some way, their stuff is attached to it in some way, um, their house or, you know, a property, um, a vehicle going into the, you know, public trust there uh, having to be registered and licensed. Um, those are controversies that can be, uh, I mean, you're already involved in them. Everybody's looking for a way to separate from them. This is a way to uh, separate yourself from them and have your rights declared as a man or a woman and not as a person. Um, and in those respects, so like Daniel mentioned, a license or a deed or a registration or, you know, uh, a title, any of those things that are uh, questions of the public trusts that have been created. So moving on from that, uh, Daniel, I could, uh, let's see here. Being that you're doing such a great job, we're going to do the uh, declaratory judgment that we uh, put together. Sure, I would be. I would be. Um, I'd be happy to, uh, to help you. I know that you were um, sitting over there having a hard having time doing and speaking earlier. Yeah, um, yeah I have issues today. And once again, I I'm, I'm first want to qualify that um, at no point in time in the attempt to be the Ministry of Help here in any of this am I purporting to be within the licensed and very specifically defined activities of a liar, uh, lawyer I meant to say, nor is this con could be construed, and I qualify this is not legal advice, and I literally disclaim any um, attempt to construe this as um, legal advice in the world of, of courts warfare. In fact, this is the exact opposite. This is a, um, um, I come as, a, as, a, as part of the ministry and as ministry of helps to help uh, my fellow brothers and sisters find remedy and relief. And if you choose to do something of this nature, um, it is upon your, um, your own walk with, uh, with Father and with God, um, Yahweh, to make the decision to use something like this. This is... Uh, a disclaimer as far as that's concerned. That being said, um, I, I helped, uh, and David and I put together 
um, a, a model that someone may some may desire to attempt to use uh, on relation to declaratory judgment. Do you want to speak to that at all, David? Well, as far as you know, I, I don't usually worry about uh, anybody misconstruing my, uh, you know, whether I'm giving legal advice or not. Uh, <laughs> but um, yeah, as far as as far as the you know the documents that we, we created here as as a um, kind of kind of like a template for putting together a declaratory action of your own. Uh, these can be used for just about any type of situation, obviously. Uh, you know, if you glean that from the reading uh, of the acts themselves. Um, this is a very effective way to bring you know, the court into equity okay? uh, in, in an action okay, that, that you're taking. So you become the plaintiff in these actions. Um, and again, I would, just like anything else, you know, the document itself isn't going to help you. It's, it has to become a part of you. It has to be yours. Um, you know, and we're happy to help, uh, you know, with any understanding or questions or things that may come up on these documents. Um, but again, it's not uh, something that you just, fill in the blanks and put your name in it and, and, and think that it's going to help you. It's just like anything else. If you don't make it a part of who you are and know it backwards and forwards, you can and will be tested. Um, you know, part of, part of winning in court, part of, uh, of dealing with any issues with the state is knowing who you are, knowing who you're not, and being able to um, manage your own affairs. And if this is something that you're going to use, learning it's no different. Um, learning about, you know, the ins and outs of declaratory judgment actions, uh, why it works, how it works. And uh, I, I think that the, the, the way that it works and, and, and the things that it will work on are, are practically endless when it comes to dealing with uh, cases. In other words, you can... You know, whether you're trying to get your children back or your car back or your house back or, you know, uh, you're dealing with uh, tickets. It doesn't really make a difference what it is. Uh, declaratory judgment is uh, not a horrible place to start uh, because, again, uh, if they don't answer, you win. And uh, you are able to utilize this, like I said earlier, as a... It's kind of like a, uh, and you'll see, it's kind of like an affidavit but with serious teeth. A judge has to order a decree uh, if the other side does not respond. It's kind of like a quiet title action, Daniel, right? Well, exactly. A quiet title action is a declaratory judgment action. Um, what you'll notice is that I, went, I had one fellow that, I helped him write one up for his grand grandparents' rights, and the opposing attorney whined and, and complained. The judge said it's rather unusual to hear it in this kind of a case, but it's not out of order. Well, what that meant to me, and I speak that to you, and I'm, I, I can't propose to know what the judge meant without asking him his meaning, and then, of course, that would still be subject to my understanding of the words he said, but... 
be that as it may, my interpretation is that lawyers don't use declaratory judgment except in the limited cases where they're precluded from anything else, like a quiet title. A quiet title is a declaratory judgment act, and there's really no litigation that you can create with nobody because you're actually putting the word out there by publication on trying to quiet the title to a piece of property. And so the, the attorneys are basically precluded from making all the monies of back-and-forth interrogatories, hearings, etc. So it's, it's uh, my opinion, the reason why when we read in the declaratory, Uniform Declaratory Judgment Act that it's not just to the – it's open to uh, any controversy, and it basically broadened it, makes that nice broad uh, brushstroke there. But the reason why it's not used by attorneys is because it's not good business. It goes right, it goes right to the uh, heart of the matter. I mean, I, you know, rights, duties, legal relations declared, boom, right now, by, by decree, let's get it out. Am I a slave? Am I free? Do I have an interest? Do I have no interest? Um, am, I, am I the beneficiary of this? Am I the... You know, all, all the, the acts and the actions and the actors can be declared if you, if you formulate it. So is that basically what you're asking? Absolutely. <laughs> Very well explained. So this one is in the District Court of the United States for the Eastern, Eastern District of California, Sacramento Division. So that's the heading. The heading doesn't, you don't keep that heading on your, on your court, obviously, you would be find the nearest district court and then follow the rules of the defendants and plaintiffs under the federal rules of civil procedure if using a federal, this is a federal declaratory judgment petition with injunctive relief, this one is. And uh, it's just a typical, um, the typical heading page, which has... Uh, uh, your person as the plaintiff versus their person as a defendant. Uh, you have a spot for a case number and a petition for declaratory judgment with injunctive relief. <clears throat> we chose the injunction of relief on this one very specifically because of the nature of this particular um, petition. Comes now the plaintiff, which is your person, and for his or her complaint, states, this declaratory judgment action is proceeding exclusively in equity jurisdiction to be heard only by an Article III judicial tribunal. That's a pretty important information there. Um, as far as uh, uh, someone who did a really good job on that, Thursday night the House of Prayer call, um, not trying to plug that on your, your call, David, but I think that uh, KL did a great job explaining the difference between Article I and tar Article II and Article III and why and how each jurisdiction got its origin and why we are not to be in Article I, Article II um, proceedings if we're wise in a on our relations to government. Um, so we chose to define equity jurisdiction. Do what? I just must be keeping hearing feedback or something. The plaintiff is entitled to this declaratory judgment by way of remedy, provisions, or violations of the following. And we list uh, the, the different federal actions or federal jurisdictions. Title 4D of Title 42 of the United States Code, Article 1 of Bill of Rights, the Freedom of Religion, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, the Civil Rights Act, Title 42, United States Code, uh, 2000D, actually, that's not in there anymore, David. We made a mistake and didn't take that out. Scratch that. Um, 
please forgive me. I'm going to remove that. Excuse me. Executive, so no Title 42, not that one. Executive Order 13798, Section 4, 82, Federal regu, Regulars, uh, reg, uh, Federal Regulations 21675, 82, Federal Register 49668, uh, the ICCPR, uh, Article 4, Section 2, Article 18, Section 2, Article 18, Section 3, 18, Section 4, the OSCE Vienna Document, Article 16F and 16G, um, HRC General Comment Number 22, Paragraphs 6 and 8, United Nations 1981 Declaration, Article 1, Section 2, Article 1, Section 3, and 5, and HRC General Comment Number 22, Paragraphs 6 and 8, Title 28, 1355, which is very interesting because it's so embracing. I might stop there and, um, and, and say that that's a very interesting section in Title 28 that states that um, any, any um, act arising, any fine, fee, penalty, or forfeiture arising from under any act of Congress, the district courts of the United States shall have original jurisdiction exclusive of the states. So they exclude the states in any matter that's arising from under any act of Congress. You know, think about that a little while as you're trying to establish federal jurisdiction um, and, and access to the federal courts. Does anything in the matter arise from under any act of Congress? We'll move on from that as you'll, you'll listen to that in the, uh, the remainder of the pleading. Uh, let's see, we use Title 42, United States Code 301 through 1305, which is the Social Security Act, uh, the UDHR, uh, Uniform Declaration of Human Rights, Articles 29 and 30, and complete diversifications of parties exist. The U.S. is an indispensable party to this action. Administrative remedy has been exhausted. United States Constitution Article 4, Bill of Rights, Article 3, United States Constitution, and Title 28, United States Code 2202, is what's relied upon as jurisdiction and venue. Petitioner claims no benefit from these statutory provisions, but relies on these as foundational to recognition of his or her equitable rights as distinguished from the legal rights arising from statutes and belonging to or subject to the state. And the equity maxim is placed there that equity will not allow a statute to be used as a cloak for fraud. We have a property description of claimed property. This is where you describe the property here. In this case, your offspring. Include a photograph, voice print, or whatever you can. With a claim, I claim my progeny. You put your offspring's name there as my property. My heir's name is, you put your prop, child's name in the and he is my property. This court is not relieved of his duty to defend my claim to my descendant. Once again, your child's name. I have not and will not abandon my property, your child's name, my biological son or daughter, as the case might be. I'm a citizen of heaven, Philippians 3.20, and, such are, and, and as such, so are my offspring and heir. And then we have a quote there from a, um, a webpage uh, of a judicial notice which quotes the, the maxim of law partis sequitur ventrum, the offspring follow the condition of the mother. This is the law in the case of slaves and animals, but with regard to freemen, children follow the condition of the father. And what's wonderful about that is 
Um, we're not to call any man our father but our father in heaven, and we follow the condition of our father, and that is complete and total freedom for whom the Son set free is free indeed. Sorry, I'm not supposed to be preaching. I'll stop, David. Um, in the absence of the controverting claim to my property, my claim to the, your child's name is the only claim of record. Then we move right into the complaint. David, stop me at any time if you want to jump in here. <clears throat> Petitioner claim you do what? I said you're good. Go on. <laughs> okay. Good. Petitioner claims rights of relief from acts of forgery, fraud, conversion, trespass, perjury of oath, theft of property, violation of rights under color of state and federal law. Against, again, an equity maxim, equity will not suffer a wrong to be without a remedy. In this case, the state of Florida, by forgery, and forgery is the fraudulent making of a writing to the prejudice of another's rights, or the making malamino of any written instrument for the purpose of fraud and deceit. So the state of California, by forgery, converted the equitable rights of parents into a function of commercial gain and, at, and such is an act of official misconduct resulting in the unlawful seizure of private property and property rights of the petitioner. Petitioner claims loss of parental rights to their offspring by some unknown and undisclosed act of involuntary servitude and petitioner is unaware of any contract whereby she has gifted or sold her offspring into slavery as a ward, a ward of the state of California for the state of California to exercise controlling interest in her property as guardian. Furthermore, the state of California has converted the ecclesiastical union and product of such union to commercial property and a for-profit enterprise in breach of trust, and as such operates as a perjury of oath and a tort of trespass committed by any agent or government officers employees thereof, or public trustees and servants on relation to this matter. Then we move to the statement of the case. This lawsuit is for declaratory judgment concerning land, water, and mineral rights to the property. Petitioner's progeny described above in the property description. Petitioner is not a corporation, has not abandoned any rights, especially equitable to the above described property. Respondents have seized the heir, Matthew 21, 38. And we quote, but when the husbandmen saw the son, they said amongst themselves, this is the heir, come let us kill him and let's seize on his inheritance. Also 2 Samuel 14, 7. The artifice of state agents in creating the dead entity, the legal person, and administration over this entity is affecting the petitioner's equitable rights to the property. Petitioner is suing to have her rights declared as to her equitable property as distinguished from and separate from the state's legal title, the child created by way of chattel paper. Genesis 48.9, Joseph said to his father, they are my sons whom God has given to me, has given me here. Um, so he said, bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Plain statement of the facts. Next section. Mm, hold on. I just lost my pace on the page. Then right along. <clears throat> Plain statement of the facts. Huh? <laughs> I was just saying, plain statement of facts. Facts specific to the matter ending with wish and will that an order proceed from this court in joining respondent from any further activity against his property or her property. State actors are erroneously enforcing a property right while acting in a federal capacity in agency and for programs 
arising under certain acts of Congress, and it denied the parents the freedom of religion in procreation, rearing, and disciplining their children per their mandate of Proverbs 22.6 to raise up the child in the way they should go. Psalms 127.3-5, children are a heritage, and parentheses, property that is or may be inherited, an inheritance from the Lord, an offspring and a, and a, and a a reward from him. And like arrows in the hands of a warrior are children born in one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be put to shame when they contend with their opponents in court. Declaratory decree. The following questions are ripe for response declaratory in nature. The use of the word children herein defined as the plural child is defined in Webster's 1828 dictionary to wit, child, a son or a daughter, a male or female descendant in the first degree, the immediate progeny of parents, applied to the human race, and chiefly to a person when young. The term is applied to infants from their birth, but the time when they cease ordinarily to be so-called is not defined by custom. In strictness, a child is the shoot, the issue, or produce of the parents, and any person of any age in respect to the parents is a child. And we maxim is between equal equities, the first order of time shall prevail. So these are the questions right for declaratory judgment. One, does the state of California act in agency and in a federal capacity under Title IV-D? Are children the product of procreation, the natural flesh and blood, living, breathing, man or woman's biological offspring, children, a state issue, a federal issue, or an ecclesiastical issue? Is the act of rearing, raising, training, diet, and discipline of biological offspring the children, a state issue, a federal issue, or an ecclesiastical issue. That's the fourth article of the Bill of Rights, the right of the people to be secured in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures extend to the property of children. Does a state actor acting in agency under federal programs possess the right to disenfranchise a parent from their children? What contract exists, number six, what contract exists, if any, that joins the biological, natural flesh and blood living being to the child, the legal person created by way of the state's birth certificate as one and the same. Number seven, if there exists no contract that joins both chattel papers to the living beings, by what authority does the state exercise its seizure activities upon living, breathing offspring? And the maxim of law, equity abhors a forfeiture. Number eight, does the state possess seizure rights of private property absent the use of said property in the commission of a crime? Number nine, what nexus exists whereby the man or woman is subjected to being recognized exclusively as a legal fiction, which acts as a cloak to affect the natural rights of the parents under the guise of administrative law through statutes affecting only legal persons? Number 10, if such nexus exists, evidence in the state's claim of right pursuant to some undisclosed or hidden nexus unknown to petitioner, such disclosure is hereby required in order that petitioner may ascertain the ascertain their rights, duties, and legal relations under such in, instrument of indenture. If I'm a slave, let me know how it got there, basically. Number 11, is the seizure activity judicial function subject to constitutional limitation? Number 12, do children belong exclusively to their parents or does the state of California possess right, title, and interest in the children under a parent's patriae doctrine? Number 13, what is a mechanism of rescission whereby a parent may sever the legal nexus if such exists under parents' patriae 
and replevin be awarded and the parent be restored to the natural state. Number 14, if such a mechanism does not exist in answer to 13 above, is is involuntary servitude an acceptable condition for children and their parents under the state scheme? Number 15, does a state birth certificate give right title and interest to the state in the property rights of children found within its agency actions? And the maximum of law quoted there, equity regards the beneficiary as its true owner. Number 16, does petitioner have any debt, duty, or obligation to submit as a subject to the use of the state statutes in relation to his or her offspring? 17, if the state statutes are found to be in contradiction to the petitioner's religious claims, customs, and lore in relation to the owning, raising, rearing, and discipline of her children, her property, is the state required to accommodate her religion? Again, equity would not allow a statute to be used as a cloak for fraud. 18, petitioner's religion defines her children as her property, a gift from God. The state actors acting in state and state and federal capacities have a greater claim on the property rights and right to raise these children. Number 19, is the petitioner's claim forfeited through the identification with the state case number? And there's a, that's if you have a state case number, you put that in there. 20, did petitioner waive any of her rights through observance to, these, this, to the state action? Number 21, when did the state gain property rights in petitioner's children? And number 22, does the state have legal title in her children? Number 23, does the state have an equitable title claim to her children? Number 24, and by the way, I'm going back and forth from his and her because um, it's just whoever is doing this, so it's either or. Number 24, by what instrument after deed did petitioner lose her legal or equitable right to her children? Number 25, are petitioner's children considered wards of the state court? If the answer to number 25 above is yes, um, by what operation of law did this wardship commence? Number 27, if the answer to question number um, 26 above is yes, by what operation of law will this wardship be terminated? Number 28, at what point, if any, in the petitioner's relationship with her progeny, did she lose her freedom of religion to train up her child in the way he or she should go? 29, if petitioner is disenfranchised of her property right to her progeny and heir, when did this disenfranchisement occur and by what act or deed? 30, does the state have a property claim to the property of petitioner's progeny? And some of these things may seem like, and I'm looking at it now, we might have um, duplicated ourselves there, David, but, but people get the idea and they could, if they have a duplication, they can take it out they decide to um, take advantage of this. Uh, and if the answer to number 30 um, is yes, is the state's claim a superior claim to petitioner's claim to her property? Number 32, does petitioner have a protected right of property in her progeny identified through the state of California's participation in the Union of States under the fourth article of the Constitution of the United States? Number 33, does petitioner have an unfettered right under the provisions of the RFRA to raise her children according to the dictates of her moral obligations pursuant to her religion, or does the state have a superior right to force the religion upon her offspring, as in the case of Michaela Haynes, discoverable here? And there we have a, um, a, a um, 
a link where you can read what happened to Michaela Haynes, um, who the Missouri, a Missouri guardian ad litem uh, withdraws from the case involving a teen suicide after a press inquiry. This girl was uh, being forced to um, live in a situation which was uh, a guardian ad litem was forcing her to live there, and she committed suicide rather than going back to a sexually abusive father, um, showing the um, extreme controversy of in- engaging these uh, state actors in our private ecclesiastical affairs. And that and that link, that hyperlink, is in the document. According to number 34, according to federal law and treaty law, at what point does a biological parent lose the equitable property right to their children? And if such is condition under federal and treaty law, does the instant matter meet conditions precedent to justify the loss of parental rights as petitioner has experienced in this matter? 35, does respondent possess legal title or equal title to the children, the corporeal property of this matter, and the trust res entrusted to petitioner and the property belonging to her God according to her religion? Number 36, if respondent possesses legal title, what is that instrument, act, or deed which transferred or assigned this title or ownership, and who is the custodian of this title? Number 37, it joined of a legal title to the child required to commit the state action for custody determinations and a requirement to possess subject matter jurisdiction of the child. Number 38, is joinder to the legal title of the petitioner required to commence a state action for custody determinations and a requirement to possess subject matter jurisdiction of the petitioner? Then we move right into the relief sought. Your name as petitioner seeks this court a hearing on this matter for the award of the following relief, declaratory judgment decree with injunctive relief, immediate decree for the release from custody of the biological property from the state to the petitioner, the biological parents, and you put the name of heirs there, your heirs there. Two, injunctive relief by decree enjoining the state of California from interfering with the petitioner's freedom of religion to raise his or her children in his or her home according to the customs and lore of her private ecclesiastical society. Injunctive relief by decree enjoining the state of California from any current and future acts retaliatory in nature against petitioner or his or her children. Injunctive relief Number four, sorry, injunctive relief is stopping any state actions involving the private property and ecclesiastical right of petitioner. Respectfully submitted your name, your address, your email, and your phone number. And then we have a list of exhibits in support of a declaratory relief. And this is the most important part of this there because it's, this acts as a, um, like a summary judgment, which means you have to have all your ducks in a row uh, before you go there. So... We have a list of the judicial notice of private trust, the notice of cease and desist and intent to sue, the estoppel and default judgment, a, a pri- private bond. Um, and number five is, is, uh, is an, a life claim, your notice of calling, your allegiance, your election, your choice of law, your lawful money, your citizenship in heaven, profession of faith. Now that's a big one there and we can talk about that, but basically in that document, would have to be things which demonstrate that which belongs to the Article Three jurisdiction on relation to you, and um, um, and you know I say Article Three jurisdiction. I'd, I'd rather say which relates to your citizenship, citizenship in heaven on relation to you. But we can open that up later on um, uh, number five, which is the, a life claim, and uh, number six is the state 4D plan which is a contract for each individual state, and myself and David have a list of most of the states for the plans, the contracts. There are a few states that we don't have missing, and they may have to be acquired if 
somebody's in one of those states which we don't have that may have to be acquired by FOIA. But uh, from years ago, when I tried to get them many years ago, they're hard to get. They don't like to get these things out because they are very inflammatory, uh, showing the state's culpability of, of using these proceedings as um, for commercial gain, even down to the use of the courtrooms being rented and the profit from each of these. Um, moving on, uh, then you have the summons. And of course, the summons gets presented to the clerk for the clerk to stamp, and it gets sent to each of the defendants, uh, notifying them that a suit had laws been filed against them or against you, it says on the summons. If it is your claim that the accused's claim is invalid, you must timely answer this claim after the service of the copy of the summons and complaint upon you. And then it gives the clerk's address and your address, and there's a place for a district clerk of the court of record to put her stamp and her seal, and that ends the actual declaratory judgment action. We have also created a brief report of the declaration. I did? Yep, that's important. It says, if you fail to respond within the stated time, judgment by default will be entered against you for relief as listed in the suit. Thank you. You did miss that. You're correct. By the way, I just want to say with that, it's interesting for the record of the people listening, um, I will let you know that um, I assisted somebody putting a declaratory judgment um, together in a very unusual case, and it was suing a, a government actor um, very specifically on a piece of property, and he he answered before the before the time and settled out of court before he would even be required to give an answer. And um, it, it's been said that if you're being sued in a court case, it'll affect your insurance premium as well as your bonding. And he answered and settled this thing long before it ever even made. Uh, it, it was settled outside of court before before the answer time. I just found that to be an interesting uh, point. These um, a lot of these state actors don't want to be sued because an actual suit affects them uh, in their in their bonding and insurance and raises their premium and certain amount of claims against their bond could cause them a loss of being able to be bondable. So I've heard. I've not proven that, but so I've heard. Well, it's also they uh, they're afraid of equity. Most state actors don't like equity because they can be held accountable for breach of trust. Do you want me to finish the brief, or do you want to just stop and, and, and take questions and comments and, and discussions on that? Um, why, don't we, why don't we finish the brief? I'm sure there's folks taking notes, and there are uh, going to be a lot of questions. So why don't we just finish the reading before we open it up? Okay. Well, the, a brief, as many of you may know, and some of you that don't, will be explained that a brief is basically your ability to argue, and that's not the word I like to use, but it's basically to create your arguments, or better yet, your positionings, and why you have you believe that you have a right to the remedy um, requested in the declaratory judgment. And they like to call it arguing. I'm just putting that out there for what's generically defined as the term for a brief. So it's basically your explanatory 
statement for the courts as far as your positioning in your declaratory judgment. So this is a brief in support of the petition for declaratory judgment. It says, the plaintiff is the claim, claimant of her offspring and property seized by agents clothed in federal capacity by way of their duties under Title 4D of Title 42 of the United States Code. Now, that could change depending upon your circumstance. Whatever it is, if you're trying to demonstrate the federal capacity, that's what you have to put in number one on your brief. Number two, the plaintiff has not availed herself of any benefit of the acting 4D agency and therefore has not waived her right of remedy and therefore she's not bound and precluded by the agency rules to seek constitutional redress by way of this declaratory action. Number three, this action is brought as an action to redress violations of religious liberty identified under Article 1 of the Bill of Rights, namely freedom of religion. Number four, this action is proper in this court and venue due to the provisions of relief sought under the Religious Freedom Restoration Act of 1993. And, of course, you can add things there. This action is proper under the Civil Rights Act. Plaintiff has exhausted any administrative remedies and by notice of claim to the respondents under provisions of the Executive Order 13798, Section 4, the 82 Federal Registry, uh, Register 21675, and it says C Exhibit A. Number seven, to the greatest extent practicable and permitted by law, department components, United States attorney offices must reasonably accommodate religious observance and practice in all activities, including litigation, 82 Federal Register 49668. As set forth below, the Office of the Assist Associate Attorney General has supervisory responsibility for overseeing, hold on a second, for overseeing the department's respect for religious liberty in litigation. The freedom of religion is a fundamental right of paramount importance expressly protected by federal law. Religious liberty is enshrined in the text of our Constitution and in numerous federal statutes. It encompasses the right, encompasses the right of all Americans to exercise their religion freely without being as a qualification. the right of all Americans to express their religious beliefs subject to the same narrow limits that apply to all forms of speech. In the United States, the free exercise of religion is not a mere policy preference to be traded against other, po other policy preferences. It is a fundamental right. The free exercise of religion includes the right to act or abstain from action in accordance with one's religious beliefs. Number eight, the rights of parents in relation to the freedom of religion or belief. And this is quoting from the ICCPR 18.4 and the OSCE Vienna document, Article 16F and 16G. State parties undertake the respect, to respect the liberty of parents and legal guardians to ensure the religious and moral education of their children in conformity with their own convictions. That's ICCPR Article 18.4. The liberty of parents and guardians to ensure religious and moral education cannot be restricted. Public school instruction in subjects such as the general history of religion and ethics is permitted if it is given in a neutral and objective way. The rights of parents in relation to the freedom of religion or belief. Um, state parties undertake to respect the liberty of parents and, and legal guardians to ensure the religious and moral education of the children in conformity with their own convictions. With their own convictions is the key words there. Uh, 18.4, the liberty of parents and guardians to ensure religious and moral education cannot be restricted. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. And what am I at here? Public school instruction in subjects such as the general history of religions and ethics is permitted if it's given in a neutral and objective way. I think we have that there twice, David. 
uh, public education that includes um, I'm here. I just lost my page. Public education that includes instruction in a particular religion or belief is inconsistent with ICCPR Article 18.4 unless provision is made for non-discriminatory exemptions or alternatives that would accommodate the wishes of parents and guardians. Uh, parents and legal or legal guardians have the right to organize family life in accordance with their own religion, the religion or belief, and bearing in mind the moral education in which they believe the child should be brought up. Every child shall enjoy the right to have access to education in the matter of religion or belief in accordance with the wishes of his parent or legal guardian and shall not be compelled to receive teaching on religion or belief against the wishes of his parent. Um, what am I at here? I just lost it. Uh, against the wishes of his parents or legal guardians, the best interest of the child being the guiding principle. The child shall be protected from any form of discrimination on the grounds of religion or belief. In the case of a child who is not under the care um, of either of his parents or legal guardians, due consideration shall be taken of their expressed wishes. My computer's freezing up, I'm sorry. Give me a second. Where are we at, David? Uh, shall be taken of their express wishes or of any other proof of their wishes in, this, in the matter of religion or belief, the best interests of the child being the guiding principle. Practices of, relig of a religion or belief in which a child is brought up must not be injurious to his physical or mental health or to his full development, taking into account Article 1.3 of the present declaration. <coughs> Okay, Pardon, we go. Yeah, there you go. Yep, there you go. All right. Public education. Wow, my computer is freezing up. I don't know why. Um, public education that includes instruction in a particular religion or a belief is inconsistent with ICCPR Article 18.4 unless provision is made for non-discriminatory exemptions or alternatives that would accommodate the wishes of parents and guardians. Parents or legal guardians have the right to organize family life in accordance with their religion or belief and bearing in mind the moral education in which they believe the child should be brought up. Um, and actually, I think we just quoted that twice in there, by the way, David. Um, so moving on down. Um, in the case of a child who is not under the care uh, either of his parent or of legal guardian, Due consideration shall be taken of their expressed wishes or of any other proof of their wishes in the matter of religion or belief, the best interest of the child being the guiding principle. Yeah, I think that was double quoted. See that, David? Yeah, I see that. Okay, so number nine, the free exercise clause protects not just the right to believe or the right to worship. It protects the right to perform or abstain from performing certain physical acts in accordance with one's beliefs. Federal statutes, including the Religious Freedom Restoration Act of 1993, support that protection, broadly defining the exercise of religion to encompass all aspects of observance and practice, whether or not central to or required by a particular religious faith. Uh, we write complete diversification, diversification of the parties exist. Um, U.S. is an indispensable party to this action. And we quote uh, Duchesne versus Sugarman on where the Second Circuit Court held, 
the right of the family to remain together without the coercive interference of the awesome power of the state encompasses the reciprocal rights of both parent and child. The court explained that children have the constitutional right to avoid dislocation from the emotional attachments that derive from the intimacy of daily association with the parents. Then Santosky versus Kramer, a 1982 case, the court declared unconstitutional a New York statute that authorized termination of a parental rights based on a preponderance of, of the evidence. Santosky is the first Supreme Court case to hold that even after parents are found unfit in a contested court proceeding, they remain constitutionally protected parental rights. They retain constitutionally protected parental rights. Article 3 of the Constitution provides that the judicial power shall extend to all cases in law and equity arising under the Constitution, the laws of the United States, and treaties made, or which shall be made under their authority, to all cases affecting ambassadors, other public ministers, and consults, to all cases of admiralty and maritime jurisdiction, to controversies to which the United States shall be a party, to controversy between two or more states, to an estate and citizens of another state, between, between citizens of the same state claiming lands under grants of different states, and between a state or the citizens thereof and foreign states, citizens or subjects. Number 15, the court dismissed a declaratory judgment sought in the Supreme Court case Wooding v. Chicago Auditorium Association because a party seeking relief before it suffered any damages did not present a case or controversy within the meaning of Article 3. In this instant matter, the petitioner has experienced loss of her property rights to her children. 16, property is defined as including everything that is subject of exclusive individual ownership or to be more specific, includes not only lands, houses, goods, and chattels, rights and credits, but also a man's person and his wife and minor children and his right to work and to sell and acquire property and engage in any lawful business in his and, her, in his and their reputation, health and capacity to labor in this and his and their right to enjoy the senses of sight, smell, hearing, and taste and his and their right of speech and locomotion, and his and their right to enjoy their sense of moral propriety when normal. That's from Gibson. On appeal, number 17, on appeal, the Supreme Court embraced Brillhart as a controlling precedent for a district court's decision whether to entertain a declaratory judgment action involving related state litigation. The court analogized Wilton to Brillhart, stating that the circumstances were virtually identical. Acknowledging that the Federal Declaratory Judgment Act carried no compulsion for the court to exercise its jurisdiction, the court held that test for the district court to apply is whether the question and controversy between the parties to the federal suit and which are not foreclosed on the applicable substantive law can better be settled in a proceeding pending in the state court. If so, the district court should obtain from um, exercising jurisdiction. We talked about that earlier. And, and of course, the problem is is the is the um, the federal nature of many of these cases with uh, Title IV D and um, and uh, the, the federal state funding program, the child support enforcement activities arising thereunder under the um, 42 United States Code, operating as a federal state funding program, and so there's a federal nature to many of these cases. And uh, but keeping in mind again the the um, you know, whatever it was that I, the, dis, the disclaimer we said about the difficulty of maintaining federal jurisdiction in these actions. 
Number 18. <clears throat> However, <clears throat> we answer that uh, we argue about the district court exercising and abstaining from exercising jurisdiction. In Title 28, 1355, United States Code states that the district court shall have original jurisdiction exclusive of the courts of the state of any action or proceeding for the recovery or enforcement of any fine, penalty, forfeiture, pecuniary, which means monetary or otherwise, incurred under any act of Congress except matters within the jurisdiction of the Court of International Trade, seeing that the state of California, vital statistic laws and documents, federal state and funding programs under Title IV-D, the Social Security Act, all treaties identified in petition for declaratory judgment with injunctive relief, all arising out of specific acts of Congress, exclusive of the courts of the states, renders any question arising under any act of Congress a federal issue not able to be adjudicated in state court proceeding. At least that's our argument here, to help these parents who are attempting to get relief and feel that the state court will be um, uh, basically jaded against them. Under the Federal Declaratory Judgment Act, any person interested under a deed, will, written contract, or other writings constituting a contract, or whose right status or other legal relations are affected by a statute, municipal ordinance, contract, or franchise, may have determined any question or construction or validity arising under the instrument, statute, ordinance, or franchise, and obtain a declaration of rights, status, or other legal relations thereunder. And I believe that ends our <clears throat> brief in support of declaratory judgment, David. I believe it does. I believe it does. Did you have anything else you wanted to add before we open it up to questions? Um, <clears throat> well, this is a federal declaratory judgment, um, and and my the, what I would, would like to add is that um, I, I might have said it now three times. It um, it is going to be it may become difficult to achieve federal jurisdiction. The only drawback, of course, is that it'll be remanded to state jurisdiction in which you would end up filing there. Um, I guess that's the only other thing I would add is that, you know, it's not the end of the world if for some reason we have um, our difficulty. And I know that it will also depend on the federal uh, judge uh, in the case. And you don't have to accept that you, as reading the rules, uh, a magistrate uh, opinion is a subject to your review and if you don't consent to it, you can have the matter brought to um, the federal judge or whatever the magistrate's attempting to kick out. But I've noticed that in the federal court, they like to bar the door to the federal judge and, and they try to keep as much off the docket as possible. It's an uphill battle. Yeah, That's I, all I want to add. I agree there. All right, well, let's open it up to some questions and answers. I'm sorry if I had muted earlier. We had uh, we had some background noise. I wanted to keep the recording pretty clean. So, But uh, there's nobody that is uh, muted out on my end. If there's any questions, now's a good time to start asking them. There are a few on this call that did receive the uh, the paperwork. Do you guys have any questions as to how to move this forward and why uh, I'm, it will be effective? Go ahead, I, I'm with um with all the questions that are asked. Um, I 
it, it seems like the uh, the courts never want to answer questions, really. Um, and I'm just wondering, I know uh, what Daniel just read at towards the end. Um, I, I think that was the uh, construction by whom requested uh, section. Um, but I, I know it says, at least in Minnesota, to determine any question arising. Um, and to me, I, I read that a little bit different. And I mean, honestly, this is, it, it, it's a question for you guys. I've never read a declaratory judgment um, or, or a, you know, the, the, the paperwork submitted for one. Um, but so is it okay to ask the questions or should it be um, that you have this right and then the judge or magistrate, whatever, adjudicates that? You want me to take this, Daniel? Go ahead. I'm going to look for something um, while you're – go ahead and talk, and I'll look for something that I can answer um, from writing. Go ahead. Okay. <laughs> Basically, the questions we put in there are going – this is going to the people that are being subpoenaed in the action. The court's not, the court's not there to answer these questions. The, this is, like, again, like we spoke earlier about how it's very similar to a quiet title. We're making our claim, and we're, and we're po putting those questions out there for clarification of the relationships of the parties, right, the status, the, the, the uh, relationship to the parties, and where they get their authority from to do what they did. Now, again, you're right. Most of the time, in, in a, in like, I would, I would uh, put this up like to the bill of particulars that, that Ed created. Right? Nobody wants to answer these questions regarding jurisdiction. And again, this can be used to, you know, uh, to, to separate yourself from government uh, as far as subject matter jurisdiction is concerned and the, the parties separate yourself from the in legis persona. Um, in this case, or in the, in, in the cases of, uh, you know, these children that are, that, that, that are you know, in the state or under state custody that are currently wards, the, um, the questions are there for clarification, and the other side has got to, the defending side, uh, the defendant or the respondent, have got to answer those questions if they believe they have a claim to do, you know, what they're doing. There is no, that's why I say this is like an affidavit with teeth, because if they acquiesce, if they don't respond within the allotted time, the judge declares your, your action, um, has to award you judgment by default. And okay. your rights are declared. Oh, oh, okay. And, and again, this is probably just me not fully understanding everything. What, what I you know, was looking at and one of the questions that was asked was something on the order of does the state have a higher claim to my property or you know than I do basically and right um, w when there's nothing there with but so like would your statement or relief requested through the declaratory judgment have in there somewhere basically the statement that I have the highest right to that property it's in your claim it is it in is the claim and okay. it's in the declaratory judgment, too. I must have read it fast. It's also in the judgment, too. 
Yeah, okay. And I was, I was trying to keep up with it and process it. I mean, I, I, it wasn't that you were reading too fast, Daniel, when, when I don't fully know it. You know, I'm trying to keep everything in perspective, and that doesn't always work for me. So <laughs> <laughs> I'll, get you, I'll get you the copy of the documents, Chad. Yeah, I'd, I'd love that and appreciate it. Thank you. You're welcome. You know, and, and I also want to say, too, that um, these things are, are, are not meant to be just sign your name and fill in a blank. These are just meant to be ideas to be given to people to utilize, um, sort of like, how would I do that? Well, here's a suggestion of how you can do it. One of the nice, nice things that I know about the declaratory judgment is not subject to forms and, and, and uh, it's, not the, it's, not the, it's, not, it's not that type of an action. It really made me wonder um, who was in there at the time they wrote this declaratory judgment act and what they were getting ready to do. I found it really interesting. It's in 1922. And, um, you know, what, what were they foreseeing that was coming down the pike for our people, you know, our our ascendants, what did they have to, uh, you know, what were, they, what were they, you know what I'm saying? What were they foreseeing when they, when it's, it's, it's like a, um, an equity maybe, act. Maybe a banking act and, and, and a raw deal. <laughs> oh, no. You had, to put, you had to fill in the blank, didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> that's what I was thinking, too. Huh? <laughs> I said that's exactly what I was thinking also. Well, we, we had to have something in place whereby there was an ability for people to have um, their rights declared as against any anything that worked to their disadvantage. And it's here. It's been here all along. It's been here since 1922 for the as far as the Uniform Declaratory Judgment Act. And I will tell you that the few people that I've spoken of, and as some of you may know, I've been like David, been at this quite some time, uh, I've heard, you know, through the grapevine, you know, you always hear these people, oh, he did a declaratory judgment, at, and, he, and this is what it was, was declared. We've heard these things, and that's what made me want to study it years ago, um, the Declaratory Judgment Act, and I read the original bill, and I read books on it, and I, and I read defining specifics of you know why you can only do an injunction but you can't do an injunction and award at the same in the same proceeding and um there you know you you get these details after spending time but you get to write your own remedy in there you get to write your own relief this is what you're you're crying out for there you know and you're you know you're looking for a decree on that and so so this is what's interesting. The decree has to match the record, and the record has to be complete. And so whatever you're putting in front of uh, the court, what you're getting is you're getting, and you can have a trier of facts be a jury in the matter. But what they're going to end up with is what is the contract? What is the writing? What is the deed? You've asked for it. I mean, you've, how else can you get the relief? Because in a declaratory judgment act, the the act is declared to be remedial. It is to settle and to afford relief from uncertainty and insecurity with respect to rights, status, and other legal relations, and it is to be liberally construed and administered. That's some hopeful words is what I'm saying. 
that holds to me uh, the possibility of equity because it wants to settle. It wants to provide relief. And it, you know, and it's to be liberally construed. It's not under the strict provisions of you can't have access because you're outside the rules. I, just today I saw somebody that was uh, trying to get a new trial based on new evidence, and he's uh, been, you know, this is horrifying. I just want to share this. This does happen to people. Um, he, got, he got scared into um, agreeing to a murder charge, which he wasn't actually the – he was in a gang. He was in the wrong place at the wrong time, but he wasn't the one that committed the murder, but he's doing a life sentence. And he was uh, attempting to get equity from the judge and because of newly found evidence, and he has newly found evidence that could help him get, his, uh, get relief from a, a life sentence in, in jail because they threatened that he was going to kill him and put him on death row. Uh, something that happened when he's a stupid kid. Um, the answer came back from the, the, the prosecuting attorney of the county saying that, I'm sorry, your Rule 333A um, motion has been denied. You're only allowed to have a motion for review of a judgment within 30 days of the trial. Of course, that was 25 years ago. The guy's already served 25 years in prison. But what I'm trying to show you is that the, the, the declaratory judgment to be liberally construed and administered, that wasn't liberally construed and administered for that, from that, that fellow. When I read this court's um, uh, answer to his you know, plea for equity, I've got new evidence to show that I can be found um, not guilty. I'm sorry, you only had 30 days until after your proceeding 25 years ago to make that claim. You've been precluded based upon us construing that you made a motion under Rule 333A. That's not liberally construed. That just generally sucks if you want to ask me. That doesn't sound like justice. It's not remedial. It's not going to give him um, uh, clear the uncertainty about the situation that he's now being, um, doing time for a murder he didn't commit. He feels that he can get himself um, uh, free with the new evidence and the affidavits of the people that finally came forth to confess. He was scared as a young kid and was threatened with um, being uh, put in life uh, uh, death row and being killed. So he accepted and allowed the prosecuting attorney to literally change his, um, uh, his, his statement, the statement he made uh, on the record. They literally changed it from the written statement they got, and they got to him when they stopped him to what they made in court, made him confess to a murder. That wasn't his statement of what happened. And so that's not justice. So, you know, my suggestion, and I gave the suggestion earlier today, to the one who was seeking out and caring for this soul and in and, and regards to her um, duties, spiritual duties, to, to love her neighbor as herself, she, I suggested a declaratory judgment for the young man. Do you see why? That's a long answer. Sorry about that. <laughs> Not a problem. Uh, I do want to mention, too, the, the exhibit list, and I wanted to go back to that. Um, there are, well, anybody who's been listening long enough to me has or has access to, anybody here also does have access to these other documents, uh, the Judicial Notice of Private Trust Affidavit, the Estoppel and Default Judgment, the Notice to Cease and Desist and Intent to Sue, okay? Um, we've talked about the bond on prior calls, uh, but again, we're bonding this action. We are, you, you know, we are uh, doing a, a, a surety bond, 20, uh, 21 pieces of silver surety bond uh, to bond our claim. 
then there's the, the life claim, which is a notice of calling and allegiance, making your election and calling allegiance sure. Choice of law, equity, ecclesiastical. Uh, this is where you would put in your lawful money claim and uh, declare your citizenship, whether it be, uh, you know, I mean, if you do look at yourself as a 14th Amendment citizen, I'm sorry. Uh, if you look at yourself as uh, a citizen uh, of, of, of any of these countries, I know in, in, uh, for myself, my Bible says that I'm a citizen of heaven. So I, I, I will stick with that. Uh, I have a lot easier time dealing with God than I do, uh, you know, narcissistic criminal politicians and their lackeys. So <laughs> uh, life claim is very, very important. Um, and having these, these other documents um, presented into your case ahead of time, doing your administrative process, utilizing these things, uh, is very important because, again, it cre each one of these witness. Uh, against the defendant in your declaratory action. <laughs> and they all go toward uh, jurisdiction, ju jurisdictional challenges. Um, again, if you're in private trust or, you know, uh, that, that, you know, having that trust as an exhibit, okay, the declaration, you're obviously not going to bring in your trust, which is a private document, but you can bring in a... Uh, you can you can bring in your own laws. I use the Bible, and it's an irrevocable trust, uh, and I can bring in my indenture and my Bible, and often and always do, if I'm dealing with the courts. Um, and again, that making my my indenture, my uh, trust, uh, evidence in in the case. So these all these exhibits go toward. Um, collecting and putting your ducks in order, you're, you're getting your evidence in order to bring your, bring your declaratory judgment action. On that, I'll open it back up to any questions. When, um, when, when, you're, when you're talking about, um, you know, taking it to federal court, uh, I've been in federal court, and that was compared to my local district state court. That was so much more difficult for me. Um, and I know your chances, at least I've heard your chances of getting remedy are much better in federal court. Um, you know, I always go back to it's like, well, when I tried, it's like, it. you know, I I just wasn't able to uh, figure out their filing system and electronically do it all, uh, you know, which probably uh, just a lot more studying time and everything I could. But do you guys see that as, you know, something you should really do is take it to federal as compared to your state district court? No, actually, it's the opposite. It's the oh. opposite. See, the, the nice thing about the declaratory judgment is, is that you're the one making the declarations. You're, you're, <laughs> you're expressing the rights and things that you want expressed and, and declared, okay? And doesn't matter which court, really. Um, but, again, if you're dealing with a court and you're bringing in an action in a court where you know that it's, uh, 
corrupt or, or biased, you know, against you, you can move it up the line. You don't have to go to the family court when you can go to the state district court. <laughs> You're bringing in action. Yeah, and that see that that's for me with with federal. When I was in federal court, um, you know, I had to file everything electronically. Uh, where my local state court, you know, I'd drive a half hour and drop the documents off. Um, and, you know, that, that was just so much nicer. <laughs> they, they couldn't reject them that way. That way they had been accepted, you know, because I, if I didn't file something uh, under the right heading or, or all that. Well, since they went to the national ID, uh, they tried to keep me out, even though they knew exactly who I was, uh, from going in and filing paperwork in the federal court in Missoula. Um, actually, had to have somebody else go in and file the stuff for me. Um, so, yeah, I get it. Um, as far as the uh, doing it in a state court, again, you're drawing up the action. The questions are for the people who are going. It's going to be served on, and if they don't respond, the judge has no choice but to declare your your uh, your rights and and give you what you're looking for. Am I correct in that, Daniel? Yeah, I mean, the declaratory judgment may be either affirmative or negative in form and effect. It may determine some right, privilege, power, or immunity in the plaintiff, or some duty, or no right, liability, or disability in a defendant. It can be, it can be whatever your evidence is there. I want to be. I want to say it for record that. If it were me, and it's not because my children, my experience, you might have already heard in other recordings. It's not about me here tonight. But if it were me to do it all over again, I would prefer doing it in the state court, and I would prefer doing it in the, in the same uh, in the same courthouse that the um, the proceeding that was against me occurred with me in the driver's seat and those that are actors that they need to answer to my declaratory judgment and come in and play on my turf. I'm going to bring this motion and make a uh, motion on the ocean on relation to my relation to this matter. I, I'm, to me, I would want it done right there. I, you know, I wouldn't want to go running off to a further jurisdictional um, element where there might be hurdles that there might be. But this was written for those that feel that they couldn't get any help in the uh, state court. They really have this... Um, they're court shopping of sorts because they feel that it's so corrupt that it wouldn't matter. Um, and, then I, and so that's why it was written in the, federal, uh, in the federal capacity. But I prefer myself the concept of the state um, court proceeding to bring the declaratory judgment because the record is the court and the court is the record and you'll have the whole record in front of you with all of the uh, questions on relation to that record, and we might even add the birth certificate to that list, David, because I think that's that needs to be put in there as well, because that's the instrument of indebtedness that this, that the states all have the right to adjudicate over if it's, that, that's their person. They have a claim to that title. Give them the title. Um, we didn't put Absolutely. that in there, but, but I just throw that out. I think we missed that. I agree. 
So we just added to it. You just put a correction on the record here that needs to be added to the evidence because the evidence does have to be complete. You do have to have the complete record, which means you could also have baptismal records to add to that. You might have the family Bible, which you I would recommend that you have one with the child's name in the front of the family Bible, and you can enter the Bible as evidence with your registry of the, in the kingdom of heaven of your offspring, which is the higher claim to all of their commercial nonsense, and uh, we can add that to the record. We're adding to this right now. As you speak, um, as you're listening, rather, we're, we're, these are things that need to be added to the record. Do you agree, David? 100% absolutely. You know, and that would be uh, 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 whether anything that has to do with your ecclesiastical, whether it be a Holy Communion or the Bar Mitzvah or whatever it is that has to do with, you know, uh, uh, your congregation, even if it's a Christian school, registry, or whatever it might be that has to do with your function as the child's um, ecclesiastical uh, functionary, mother and father, which comes from God first. That's why it's your ecclesiastical duty. You've got a trustee duty. You're a trustee. That's your property. It isn't trusted to you, for sure. Yep. And a trustee is not allowed to let the property be diminished while he's serving as trustee. He's responsible. So it's put in the way of, of going in there as the executor, administrator, a responsible party for everything to do with the estate of that little one that you're entrusted in in an ecclesiastical functionary way. Let's get a declaratory judgment on it. Let's get it on. This is my duty. This is my property. This is, um, I've got the highest indenture of the highest claim there. I'm bonding my claim anyway just to make sure everyone knows I'm real. You guys are playing all this phony stuff. I'm here. I'm real. I've got real lawful money on the table. I've got a claim out here, and um, there's a declaratory judgment. It's on the public record. And these are the, um, the things that really need to be addressed. All your monkey business being aside, let's get away from this uncertainty and insecurity as respect to my rights, my status, my legal relations, and that, my property, my son or my daughter. Let's get it on. And again, you know, this just, doesn't just necessarily have to be for a custody case. Or, uh, like I said, this, this works in just about every situation that you may find yourself in. Well, right. Uh, No, that's okay. Um, I I was just going to say, you know, and I agree with attorneys don't want to do declaratory judgments, um, but I I think I brought it up before where I got the... um, the, under Rule 26, the the admissions and interrogatories, all that. Um, And the attorney said, if you don't answer these, um, you know, we're going to move for a declaratory judgment. And I think they were doing that because of the other stuff that I presented them with, and they thought it would be very difficult to overcome it. Honestly, that's my opinion without, I'm not trying to toot my own horn, but... Um, it's, it's what I've learned from a lot of you guys, you know, so it, it's, uh, I, I believe that's why they did that. And I haven't heard a, a thing from them since I responded, but. <laughs> can, can I ask well, a redirect on that, Chad? Please do. Did, did, were you certain he used the word declaratory judgment and not a summary judgment? Yep. Yep. Definitely. 
Wow. I, I in his letter. Yep. You got it in writing too. Yeah, yeah. He sent. They gave me because I I told them. You know, I've basically been on the uh, the side of it. Like they're telling me I have to do this because the civil rules of procedure say that. And I did my affidavit telling them. You know, the civil rules of procedure don't apply to me when I have not come to this court asking for any benefit. You know, so I don't have to follow that. When they sent me that, I sent it back to them. Um, you know, return for cause, and I'm I'm not contracting with them. And uh, then then the I got the letter saying, well, you know, the court has ruled that you uh, you have to follow the rules and the rules apply and all that. And I rebutted that. And then I got the letter saying, you know, if you don't answer this we're going to move for a declaratory judgment. And so I responded back and I did answer everything, but I put in there, I said, I am doing this to be honorable, not to follow the rules that you are alleging I need to follow and things like that. And then I also, you know, gave the little elbow to the ribs of saying, you guys haven't responded to my affidavits, you know, it's so... Well, the reason most lawyers are, you know, not going to use declaratory judgments and they kind of steer away from them is the same reason why doctors don't cure diseases so that they can continue to, uh, you know, sell you uh, cures that aren't cures, you know. <laughs> they want you to keep yeah. coming back. You get paid either well, way. Lawyers yeah, and lawyers in the same way, if they're not going to make as much money dragging out a case through litigation – then they're not going to take the case. So if you're looking to ask a lawyer, you know, or a liar for a declare, you know, to do a declaratory judgment action for you, good luck with that. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. I haven't asked an attorney to do that, but, you know, other things just to get to the point and have it done. Uh, you know, I've, I've dealt with attorneys in that and specifically before I told them I would hire them. Um, and that was a, a time constraint for me when I did that. Um, I just, I, I did not have the time. I was living in a camper and did not have the uh, ability to respond to everything in a timely fashion. And, uh, you know, he, he was like, oh, yeah, yeah, okay, you know, and he had some questions. And then it was just like, okay, well, how do we settle this matter? How much are you going to pay him, you know? <laughs> Same thing as what yeah. you were saying, just dragging it out. Yeah, they want to litigate because they make the, the most money that way. So is there any other questions on the on the declaratory judgment action or if you have something else that, you know, that's pressing that you want to discuss, a case or some other legal topic, feel free to do so. I am hoping to hear from... Uh, some of the folks that, that are going to use this declaratory judgment action uh, for the purpose that we created it, as far as the, you know, if it, it, you know who you are that, that we created this for. And and I want to can I make a comment on that on that end? Um, sure. Just just so it's very clear because you know I I serve in a capacity <laughs> and, and uh, as uh, as devoted my life to. Um, to the Father and, and the Kingdom, um, 
I would say that this is still a secondary remedy as far as because you know you have in this sense the uh, the judge could um, could could may refuse to render a declaratory judgment or decree where such judgment or decree is rendered or entered would not terminate the uncertainty or controversy. So to a certain degree, they have a wiggle room there. And to another degree, you are getting uh, the, you know, the public officer, which I understand the, the, the current um, uh, state of affairs. I just want, to say, want to see, us to see in the future that we will be able to issue judgments out from the court of your assemblies as you as we assemble together yeah. as the body, judicial proceedings whereby we can enter the ecclesiastical judgment as well. And I, I believe we need to get to that stage. I'm just throwing this on the forefront of our thoughts. That, yeah, that I is, agree there. But I also think, too, that, you know, and you, you just mentioned that, uh, you know, without the controversy, if you have a case going on and you haven't entered in, the memorandum and the jurisdictional inquiry and the, and the judicial notice of private trust uh, waited your 21 days, uh, didn't receive anything, put in your estoppel and default judgment into, the, into your case, and then uh, if they decided they want to continue moving it forward, put in your notice of cease and desist and notice of intent to sue and, the bonded, you know, and your bonded counterclaim. Um, those are all evidences of the controversy and the questions that need answering in your declaratory judgment. So you're creating that with these other documents in the exhibit list. So what we can do to join those two thoughts together is on the public record, I will say that if you present to me as, as a, uh, as a member of a private member association to which you are joined together with me personally, and we have a covenant agreement together as private member associations, I'd be happy to, um, to sign the judgment or decree from the congregation uh, declaring these rights, and you can put it in as evidence in that case with your um, with your declaratory judgment if you choose to do this. I I, I'm, I'm down to do that as well. That's, that's a fantastic idea from the ecclesiastical. I would be happy to issue an order from the ecclesiastical um, private member association declaring your private property rights and your and your trust property. And uh, you just saying that, I'll be, that would be something we can add to this as well, David. Yeah, that's a fantastic idea. This way you're not even putting it into their hands, not until after it's already been decreed. Well, now you just, you've done it. You've, you've settled in the private and you're given the public notice and what's he got to do because that's, that's your record. And they've yeah. got to speak to the contrary now to the, to the record. And the record shows that you've got, already got a judgment on the relation to the property in the ecclesiastical realm. So now they're really going to show where they've got authority over that which belongs to God. Yeah. And I would say, boom, that's bulletproof uh, at that point. It's, uh, you know, under the uh, Foreign, Foreign Adjudications Act, they have to accept it in their court. It well, is an appeal know, to a higher. It is appeal. It is an appeal to a higher authority, as it pertains to you and yours. And you can put it on the. You can put it on the record, um, and uh, enter it into the county, on the pub, on the public record where you live, 
um, and put it there and then take it out of that public record and put it on a case. So now it has to, uh, they have to take mandatory judicial notice of it and authenticity as far as you making it public, uh, which gives everybody an opportunity to say to the contrary to the, the fact or the contract, whatever it is that you put on the public um, record. You gave them notice uh, of the judicial notice of, um, of, the, uh, of the order from your order. I like that, by the way, the order from your order. I just made that up. Sorry, I was just tickled with my my, uh, my poetry in motion here, guys. Sorry. Everything went silent out there. Please talk, somebody. I'm feeling rather uncomfortable. <laughs> no, don't, don't, Daniel. My my question um, w with that is, uh, and and I can see for certain cases when it's uh, you know say a, a what they would call a criminal charge. Um, what about, you know, I, I think uh, I, I've dealt with debt a lot. Um, then you would have to have notice to the other parties um, and everything if there was some type of a hearing, correct? When you ask the question again, I'm sorry, my, my comprehension skills are lost somewhere in that sentence. I, I probably didn't explain it that well. Um, but so if if there's an adjudication on a matter, um, no matter where the adjudication is done, ecclesiastically or through these so-called courts we have, um, we would still, through on the ecclesiastical side, um, to to adjudicate, say, a, a, a dispute in a, a debt matter. Um, the other party would still have to get noticed and, uh, you know, basically be given the opportunity to be heard, correct? But if they're not a member of that private society, then there's nothing binding them to coming to that, correct? Well, unless you have a, unless you have a record... If you're no, there's nothing binding. There's nothing binding them to do anything. Just like there's nothing binding you to make a contract with their with their. You can't be forced to make a contract with them. That'd be involuntary servitude. They allege everything we've done, we've done voluntarily. That's what they allege anyway. Um, we voluntarily join this. But um, ask the question one more time because I have an answer. It's on tip of my tongue and it's like right there. Oh, okay. I I think kind of what you said uh, helped me. Uh, figure it out, and maybe I'm wrong here yet. But um, so, if if a matter is going to be adjudicated, you know, both parties should be there. Um, but with what you're saying, if they ignore that, then they're basically leaving that field of battle, also. So if right. they're trying to draw me into their their you know private courts, and I don't go, they default me. And then I could use that as evidence if they try and draw me into their courts afterwards. Well, you definitely have an evidence of, of uh, well, an offer, an offer, well, just using their commercial um, gameplay, an offer to pay a debt refused is a debt discharged, right? Yeah. So um, anytime you try to communicate an inquiry, and they're playing, all they got is commerce. It's the only game chip they have to play with is commerce. We're the real men and women, and we have the choice of whether we're going to play commerce or not. And, you know, it's a lot easier not to. It's a lot less bumps and bruises. But nonetheless, if we're going to play commerce, we can play it um, 
with, with our rules and we can define the terms and we could get them into places where they can't foreclose on us because you offered to pay the obligation they refused and that is discharged. Now you have to have, that would be prime for declaratory judgment. You can, uh, you can demonstrate that to anybody of arbitrators. You can go to three witnesses and you can say, look, I, here's what I did, here's what, I, here's what happened, here's what they didn't do. I need a judgment. You sign off on it and out of the two, three witnesses, let every word be established that you can see that I've done everything I could to these people and this is what a non-response. Will you give me a judgment? And you got a judgment. The question is, is how does that judgment affect your case? Well, I'm thinking that an ecclesiastical um, organization to which you are a private member is uh, just like David talked about as a be it then, that organizational structure is you've committed yourself and this property to demonstrates the highest claim in this matter because it shows your rule and content over a presumed contract. You have an actual one. Over a a presumption of participation in the society of the state to resolve your um, marriage and ecclesiastical functions, divorces, affairs, children, deaths, whatever it is, you, you've, you've chosen to uh, demonstrate your equity to your court, your society. They gave a judgment. Now, if you're trying to affect their world, I can see doing a declaratory judgment in a state court. You can bring your judgment there, but at the end of the day, um, their banker's going to have to see or disagree and have a good cause why he disagrees with your judgment. And that banker I'm talking about is the man wearing the black robe up there doing the uh, commercial affairs as administrative judge. He'd have to go ahead and uh, uh, see... We have to have good cause why your judgment shouldn't stand when you go in there, and that's how I see it. Did that answer no, I, that? Time? That that did that that yeah that uh, made me think a lot more clearly on all of it. Thank you. And we're all guessing anyway. Just some guess better than others. <laughs> Very true. Hey guys, I wonder if I can ask you a question. I guess not. I didn't hear anything. Oh, okay. Now, um, yeah, I got a court case coming up for traffic court, um, which also I had a obstruction of governmental administration on on top of the traffic tickets, which is actually being uh, tried or is in a separate court. So it's just that one charge of obstruction and I I mean I'm going in with the jurisdictional challenge um, I've already you know changed my status and <clears throat> basically um, you know I'm going to deem the case void because they don't have any jurisdiction um, so if they don't prove any jurisdiction obviously the case is void, but then I'm wondering how can I sue the officer, the police, the cop who unlawfully arrested me? David, you want me to hit on that? Am I on the call? Yeah, I can hear you. Yeah, you are, Daniel. We lose David? We must have lost him because I can hear both you guys fine. Wasn't David the host? Huh? Wasn't David the host? 
or Daniel yep. the host? David the host. Yep. I just heard somebody beep. I don't know. Well, okay, well, my answer to that is going to be kind of odd. I think that challenging jurisdiction, if you challenge jurisdiction and you go in there and you're doing all of the, the proceedings at, at court, of course, my statement would be that's not a challenged jurisdiction. Because as I read in the uh, law dictionary, uh, when we talk about appearance, one would appearance would be, be either general or special. These are uh, the types of appearances we can make in a court. And a general appearance is one that agrees to the jurisdiction of the court for all purposes whatsoever. A special appearance, however, is something completely different. And I'm going to open up my Black's Law Dictionary, and, and I'm going to attempt to read that. Right. Here. I mean, I was, I was planning on making a special appearance under threat of duress and violence if I didn't show up. Sorry, guys. I got bounced off. Can you hear me now? Can, can do. Well, I guess what I was what I was trying to uh, what I was trying to derive that is that a um, a special a special appearance you can only be doing two things you can be either be challenging the court's jurisdiction or a sufficiency of process and that is that the right person in the right capacity has been charged not did they give you unregistered mail or did you get a letter. So my point is, is if you're answering for the name in the court, um, in in a specific type of court, and you're you're not, and you're not only if you're addressing anything else, but the fact that um, that we have a, a problem with the venue, the type of court, and and uh, and so we've got uh, Ed does a bill of particulars. So that you that heard on the call, Ed, is a prime example of of how you can challenge jurisdiction and never answer to the claim. He does a bill of particulars. Um, David does the uh, judicial notice of private trust and uh, and establishes uh, his cease and desist notice on on who he is to them. Um, but definitely, jurisdiction is not you don't go through the whole court proceeding because once you challenge jurisdiction, you, they they can't get you from point A to point B. And in my case, and I'm not it's different for everybody else, but the case that I actually got in front of a court. Um, they never even got past arraignment with me. I was never arraigned. A year later when they went to go to trial, um, we got a null prosk, uh, but they never even got an arraignment. So in my case, if you, in, in your case, if you get past an arraignment, it appears like we've entered, uh, if it's a criminal matter or any kind of quasi-criminal matter, we get past arraignment, it appears like that the court is up and running and they have jurisdiction and you've uh, somehow, some way, granted that court jurisdiction of the, of the um, subject matter or the in personam jurisdiction to where they have joined her. It's my opinion. And I open it up. If someone else disagrees with me, I'm open to hear the contrary. But that's my opinion. Can you guys hear well, me now? Yep. Ah, all right. Sorry, I got bounced. <laughs> Off my own call. Go figure that. Yeah, sorry, so, David. You uh, was in the middle, middle of a question there. I'm sorry about that. No, that's fine. I, 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 I was listening to most of it until I totally hung up and recalled in because you guys couldn't hear me. But, uh, no, I agree with what you said there. I agree with what you said there. Um, so this, far will as, be, uh, this will be my first court appearance, so I guess this will be like for an arraignment, which I'm not going to plea, not going to make a plea. And I also have... Um, demands for lawful authority sent out and accused to 
um, prior that I will have as evidence as well. So you you gave notice to the court already? I gave notice to the troopers, uh, commissioner DMV, like about two months ago, demanding their lawful authority to pull me over that, and uh, there was a quiz too. Okay, did and, you put that into the case file? You said uh, you put that into the court? I, excuse me? Did you I put that put into any, the case file? I haven't put anything into the case file yet because haven't, I haven't been to court yet. Right, but you don't have to go to court for there to be a case file. If, you, if there's a court date, there's a docket number and, and, and the file, the, the case number. Right, That's okay. No, I, haven't, I haven't filed anything yet, no. Okay. This, uh, this guy needs a bill of particulars. He needs <laughs> either that or a notice. Uh, you know, the, the notice to cease. Or excuse me, the uh, notice of ju- uh, judicial notice of private trust, a, a jurisdictional inquiry, and a uh, the memorandum of law on religious freedom. You could go that route, or you could go what Ed was just saying with the bill of particulars for sure. But you got to put something well, into the case that's challenging their jurisdiction yeah he could do he could actually do both but the reason i like the bill of particulars is especially if he's never been to court before you file the bill of particulars in with both the pro you you call the clerk of the court you find out who the prosecutor is you file the bill of particulars into the court case whatever the case number is with the clerk and then you uh certify mail a copy to the prosecutor could be a general solicitor. They might call them something else. They might call them a district attorney, but whoever right. the prosecuting attorney is. Uh, the reason I like the Bill of Particulars is it covers you in, in a, a, a slew of ways, and I'm just going to hit on the highlights for you. So once you file it into the case and you send it to the prosecutor, what state do you live in? Uh, New York. Okay. So New York, they have 30 days to answer, I believe. 30 days. So, uh, so well, the court appearance is, is only within like 16 days. So, Well, that's okay. That's for because, you. <laughs> uh, something that wasn't said earlier, when you make a written challenge on the record to jurisdiction, the court loses jurisdiction until, the, until, the, until it's been proven on the record. Right. Okay? So once you file it in, it does several things for you. The first thing it does is it covers all your Sixth Amendment rights. So, so the Sixth Amendment rights are you have the right to make an informed plea. So you're not going to say, I'm not going to make a plea. You're just going to say uh, that you have the right to make an informed plea, or you ask the judge, do I have the right to make an informed plea? And he'll say yes. And uh, I said, well, do I have the right to know the nature and cause of the proceedings against me? And basically, the Bill of Particulars, it's got a dash, and then it says nature and cause. So it's your questions regarding nature and cause of the, of the uh, charges against you. And they're your questions. So the judge will say, well, I'll tell you nature and cause. I'll say, no, 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 Your Honor, you don't understand. I don't want to know what your answers are to nature and cause. I've got my own questions regarding nature and cause. And the beauty of it is it's not, a, it's not a controversy before the court 
it's the sworn legal duty of the prosecutor to answer those questions. So the judge can't deny it. It's not a motion before the court. So the judge, there's nothing for the judge to deny. Either the questions get answered or they don't. And I can tell you, they never get answered. Right. So you have the right to make an informed plea, and you can't make an informed plea until you know the nature and cause of the, of the proceedings against you. Uh, or your rights and, and your status. <laughs> yeah. Similar to the declaratory so, judgment that we were talking about today, before this ever gets to a hearing, you could have your rights declared. Now, what is it that you're standing on? Why are you saying that what, you know, you're making an argument which will give them jurisdiction. You're saying, you know, what, are, what, uh, what authority did you pull me over under, right? You sent that to the, to the highway patrol, right. right? But what are you standing on? I mean, what, what is your, what is your, what's your declaration as far as, you know, you, you, you want answers from them. But rather well, than doing that, yeah, one rather would than be just that doing it haphazardly, you can you can do it in a declaratory, you know, uh, judgment action prior to the case ever being brought into court. Yeah, in fact, you can make the uh, case a respondent, and whoever is officiating as the trustee over that case a respondent in your declaratory judgment act, and all the parties in that be a respondent in your declaratory judgment act, especially if you have a court of record that shows you're something that they're saying uh, you're something different than what they're saying you are. If you've got that in an evidence trail and you've got a record of it, you can literally um, start start right off on the offensive was the point and have your right status and legal race, relations declared and it's binding upon that other court proceeding. It says it right so in the act. So you don't have to wait for them. You know, you're supposed to agree with your adversary while you're in the way with them. And that's unless you go to the court and pay the other most farthing, well, the degree is to make a, uh, put a, put, you know, get it on the record to make it, to, to, to come to terms. Let's come to terms. And uh, if you've got a court of record, use the Declaratory Judgment Act, that, that, like David said. I agree with that, David. That's a cool idea. Enter the bill of particulars, and, and, uh, and, and then when they don't answer 30 days, uh, you know, get a declaration as, as uh, you know, a, with declaratory judgment and an award. Choose the award well, side. Yeah, how do I get the award? <laughs> uh, well, there's a tithe now. Ten percent of that's got to go back to the church. I and mean, if you agree to that, we'll tell you. <laughs> hey, hey! If I can get ten, I, I, I'll put ten percent back into the church for you guys. If I if I get awarded some some financial uh, you, judgment, y'all y'all heard it here. Y'all heard it. That's right. I'll, give you, I'll give you my email address and, and, and feel free to reach out to me privately and we could discuss the details. All righty. What's, what's your email? All right. You got your pen handy? Yep. All right. The letter A. Yep. F. R E E M A N I N B A B Y. L-O-N, at gmail.com. A free man in Babylon at gmail.com. And that goes for anybody else on the call or anybody that's going to listen to the uh, recording. Um, you know, we have no problem sharing 
a copy of the declaratory judgment action and the brief in support of that uh, with you at no charge. Defer a donation would be nice. Uh, we did spend a lot of time on that, uh, putting it together. But, um, yeah, I mean, if you need help putting all the details together because you're not familiar with declaratory judgments and how they work, we're happy to spend the time uh, – you know, showing you, teaching you, and, and getting you uh, prepared for court. Um, but that that would be done uh, in excess of <laughs> giving the documents out. Let me put that put it that way. Right, right. I mean, I've been to court before. I've been to trial and all that stuff. So I'm, I'm, I'm familiar with court. But, you know, I'm just not familiar with how to go about getting an award, you know, from maybe a void case or something like that or, you know, case dismissed. Uh, through a declaratory judgment. <laughs> right, right, okay, right. And and uh, if you shoot me an email, I'll get you a recording of, of this call so that uh, you can listen to it again because uh, we explained, we read through bo- the uh, – federal and the the uniform acts and uh read through the declaratory judgment and the brief well daniel did uh helping me out with my breathing issues today but um yeah and and i mean we didn't hold anything back and we're not holding anything back um thing is is we do get a lot of calls for help and um you know it took us a long time to get this action together uh, for the benefit of the folks that, that are, are, are missing their children right now. Um, so, yeah, if anybody's right. interested in, in this process, what's that? Your name is again? David. David. Okay, David. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> but, yes, this will work in a traffic case. This will, you know, I mean, this can be used in just about any situation. And the brilliant thing is, is it's handling it privately. You're getting your right. rights declared ahead of time. It's like putting uh, Ed's bill of particulars into a declaratory judgment action and, and having your rights uh, dec- declared and decreed ahead of time. So that when you go into court, it's already been ruled on. There is nothing before the court anymore. Your rights are, are exculpatory to their statutory cloak uh for fraud right 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 i I think that's the you know the purpose of you know the demand for lawful authorities that i sent out already to the dmv to the trooper you know association to the actual arresting officer and when they don't respond then they default on that so they have no case right down there the office can't respond without the agent, and the agent doesn't know what to do. A lot of times right. they'll ignore it. A lot of times another... they're going to ignore it. What was it? Was that Ed? Go ahead. Um, no, it was Daniel. I was just there's a there's a way to look at this declaratory judgment too that that I'd I'd like for us all to consider when we're talking about it when we're going to court. Usually it's Goliath swinging his his big ads at you, and you're defending against that swing. 
when you're doing the declaratory judgment, that's when you had grabbed the stone out of your pouch and you were stoning that, you were sending that stone in to the Goliath, the one that Goliath. You have a stone for the one that Goliath, and that's your that's incoming. So they're different. They're different processes. Uh, one is defense, and one is offense. You're moving forward with your claim like a trustee should do. If you've been given freedom, who's going to be the one to, to defend your rights? Well, you are. You're the executor of, of those that property. Your rights are your property and your freedom and whatever it is, your, your liberty of locomotion, your right to travel upon the migrate upon the land of your, uh, the land that you were born, your birthright, the, the right of, of, of locomotion and migration is, uh, is your law. And, um, and, yeah, I think you have to have something that's incoming. I think you'd be better than having uh, trying to swap the mosquitoes, find something to, to kill them with. Uh, well, they so say the best defense is a good offense. Sure. <laughs> that's right. This is, this is taking – it's taking it to – so you, they give you a time between when they give you a ticket and when, they, when they're saying that you, they want you to come to court. I always found that interesting. And they give you this period in these windows – and, uh, right. and the, my, my point is, is, hey, you know, I, I, I need more time. I, I need a continuance because I'm, st- I, I'm, st- I'm still in the settling stage with, uh, with the claimant and we haven't come to terms yet. Um, and, then, and, and agree with your adversary or bring them into your court to have them answer to your um, uh, positioning and be the, be the one that starts the case so that you're the, they have to answer in your jurisdiction to your claim and uh, they have to be the respondent and it's them that's got the incoming to answer to. And the questions they will not answer. So the chances of your judgment being decreed are huge. Right, right. All right, that sounds good. And uh, I'll be getting in touch with you uh, tomorrow or the next day at the latest. Sounds good. I look forward to speaking to you with you and uh we have anybody else that has any questions or comments or an issue they're dealing with feel free to jump in thank you ed for for uh bringing in bringing in the uh bill of particulars and oh yeah well well, daniel and i will i'll send you over the uh declaratory judgment action You'll see how your bill of particulars would fit right into that. Actually, I, yeah, actually, I, I I got a copy uh, day before yesterday from the guy that uh, y'all are helping. I, I believe it's the same. Oh, good. Oh, good. Gotcha. Yes, uh, when I sent them out originally, perfect. Uh, but the guy that you were just talking to, uh, there's a there's a a brief that I just finished, and uh, it applies to all traffic tickets. And it, it deals with the Peonage Act of uh, March 2nd, 1867. So have you ever heard somebody else call them a peon, call somebody a peon? <laughs> uh, uh, in law, a peon is one who is compelled to work for his creditor until his debt is paid. And the fact that he contracted to perform the labor which is sought to be compelled does not withdraw the attempt, attempted enforcement from the con- condemnation of the Peonage Acts. And basically... The Peonage Act uh, would apply to all traffic tickets because what you're saying is uh, you're giving me an, a debt to discharge without an injured party. 
which is most traffic tickets, there's no injured party. So right. that's covered. That's that's a, a, a rights violation under the 13th Amendment, uh, which was added to the Constitution back in 1864, uh, and the Peonage Act came three years later in 1867. But basically it's saying that... Uh, that the I'll just pick my state. I'll use my state. Uh, this is the, this is how it starts. The Thirteenth Amendment, which was added to the Constitution for the United States of America in 1864, and consequently accepted and adopted by all the states, including the federal state of Georgia, which is a subcorporation of the United States, prohibits involuntary servitude. And the laws against peonage were added shortly thereafter. Like I said, three years later. These private laws were enacted based on the Fifth Amendment in the Bill of Rights that guarantee that the government cannot deprive a man of life, liberty, or property without the due process of law. Note should be made that the deprivation cannot be made without due process of law, which would, of course, preclude deprivation by equity or quasi-criminal by the fictional administrative courts of today acting for profit and gain in limited liability insurance schemes. So... The part about the traffic tickets that I put in here, since uh, that's that was the topic we were just talking about, there was an act uh, in 1911, Bailey versus Alabama, that went all the way up to the Supreme Court, and the site is 219 U.S. 219. Again, a 1911 case, and uh, basically this is this is what it says, or this is what the paper that I wrote says. The Bailey Act addressed state law that failure to keep a promise to discharge a debt made by contract as prima facie evidence of fraud where fine and or imprisonment can be imposed upon the convicted charged party. Likewise, in civil matters, for example, as to a driver's license with the state of Georgia, any traffic uh, citation is taken as prima facie evidence, uh, prima facie case for one of injury to this government based upon the promise that the traffic codes would be obeyed. The driver's license is prima facie evidence of such promises made. However, under what is peonage of the Bailey court ruling, uh, altered to meet the driver contract subject matter, one who is not a commercial act, in, not in a commercial activity and is therefore a traveler, Though contracting to meet promises made and subject like any other contractor to an action for damages for breach of that contract, can elect at any time to break it and no law of, or force compels performance or a continuance of the service. Uh, see the last sentence of what is peonage, and it, it goes through this in the uh, Bailey Act. Under such restriction, a court action for breach of a driver contract requires a verified action for damages. And I got verified highlighted. Which means the actions must be based upon a sworn complaint of injury which must be proven on the record. A mere traffic citation is insufficient evidence for injury to anyone. Thus the rules of civil procedure that failure to state a claim upon which relief can be granted applies to the city and county courts of the state of Georgia and are under a duty to acknowledge this as the court has no authority to compel anyone to pay a fine or otherwise through a presumption that the traffic citation provides the readiest means of compulsion for the transfer of interest to one's labor. 
the labor of a human being is not a commodity or article of commerce. And that's in 15 U.S.C. 17 in the form of an order to pay a fine or imprisonment. So essentially, hey, the way I finished, yes, yes. No, I'm sorry. Go ahead and finish. I'll wait until you're done. Okay, the way I finished it was every judge, magistrate, administrative law judge, administrative officer, U.S. marshal, peace officer, law enforcement officer, or LEO, code enforcement officer, district attorney, prosecutor, just an attorney, or anyone else in government enforcing the laws has the obligation to be certain their job is conducted lawfully and legally. They cannot permit themselves to be used for illegal, illegal enforcement of laws that do not apply to the sovereign people of the nation. Any force used to control a person's life, liberty, or property by the creation of debt or involuntary servitude constitutes peonage since it results in the person being forced to labor against his will to discharge the debt so, so created by the state. Peonage, however created, is compulsory service or involuntary servitude. This is a civil rights issue of major proportions. It is immaterial whether the force used manifests itself as threat or actual use of a courtroom to gain an undue conviction. Both are equally punishable under the penage laws, and the state is a fiction and cannot be damaged or injured, therefore cannot have a claim against the sovereign man. That's how I ended it. I like it, and one thing I've got to say is that in defense of a traffic ticket would be perfect and, and uh, a question ripe for declaratory judgment to bring an offensive claim and have your rights declared. Am I or am I not a peon? Right. Are you calling me a peon, Your Honor? Because <laughs> if you are, if you are, then the peonage act applies. Well, and that's the same thing. They're always claiming that there's a debt owed. There's charges. It's commerce. That's exactly what it's all about. And it's why we always feel like we have our slaves to this system. But again, I believe that that exact thing would be a, a welcome addition to a uh, declaratory judgment in any case. Do you think? So, what do you think, Daniel, as far as uh, utilizing that in the declaratory judgment? Absolutely. I, I was going to ask, Ed, because I love the Bailey versus Alabama case, and you didn't really – could you – I mean, I'm welcome for you to, since you brought it up, to share the thunder, because I love that case. Can you want to tell it, simplicity, for the people to hear? Well, essentially what it says in the case – I'll just read the parts that I highlighted. Uh, the words involuntary servitude have a larger meaning than slavery, and the 13th Amendment prohibited all control by coercion of the personal service of one man for the benefit of another. While the 13th Amendment is self-executing, Congress has to secure its complete enforcement by appropriate legislation and the Peonage Act of March 2, 1867, and statutes 1990 and 5526 of the revised statutes and are valid exercises of this authority. And the site for that is Clyatt versus United States, 197 U.S. 207. And then I read you guys the part that said, peon is one that's compelled to work for his creditor until his debt is paid. Uh, these are federal anti-peonage uh, acts are necessarily violated by any state legislature which seeks to compel service or labor by making it a crime to fail or refuse to perform it. So in other words, if there's no injured party, there can be no verified action. 
if they're if go they, figure you know, the way, the, the, <laughs> sorry the I, way i wrote I it, a mere traffic <laughs> a, a mere traffic citation is insufficient evidence of injury to anyone but yet they're still calling it a crime well that's so, because the very next amendment that they created was the 14th amendment citizen that they could pee on all over well, I got a law for I got a case law for that, and it was either in the late 1800s, or early 1900s. I heard the gentleman earlier say that he had his standing corrected already. Uh, you know, I don't know if he did a UCC or the Minnesota SOS filing or what he did, but uh, create a private trust, maybe a passport. Yeah, I don't know. I don't, I'm not sure what <laughs> Man, he did. I just, but. I just uh, created a uh, uh, change of status affidavit and sent it off to. All the state and federal authorities. Okay. I used to do that, and it always got uh, disregarded in its entirety. So so what I do now is I do a... Uh, well, a, disregarded a, uh, would mean that they acquiesced on it, so it stands as facts in, in court of law, right? Well, technically, yes. But the guy that, uh, that Daniel and David have been trying to help, I've actually been with him on the phone during some of these hearings. And I've listened to most of his hearings that are going on in California. And everything that he's put in, including his Bill of Particulars and his amended Bill of Particulars, has just been run over. These people are corrupt. These are Satanists that are running these courts. All right. So what I wanted to say is what, I, what I'm doing now is I'm doing a corporate uh, affidavit denial that I'm a corporation. Or that uh, w within the plain meaning of the law of person, I can't be a person. First of all, the word person is actually plural. I don't, I don't think many people know that. And I had to go all the way back to 1917 to find it. Uh, in the Manual of Law and Procedure, American Law and Procedure, Chapter 13, page 1, uh, uh, Chapter, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Volume 13, Chapter 5, page 156 uh, and 157 where it defines the term person, uh, person is a plural word. So if you say that you're a person, then what you're saying is, I'm also a corporation, an organization, an association, blah, 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 blah. That's the way they name it in law. So what I do is I do, now what I do is I do a corporate denial affidavit. And it's got to be an affidavit, okay? It's got to rise to the level of testimony, so under penalty of perjury. And then I follow that up with a... Uh, a case law at the end of it, and the case law is Penhollow versus Dones Administrators. And basically what that case law says is that these, these state courts only have authority over corporations. So that one affidavit under penalty of perjury lets them know right away that it's on the record that they do not have any jurisdiction over you. Well, that would be another right that needs to be declared, and it's right. right for declaratory judgment, which is it's a part of the one that we created, and because jurisdiction is always what we challenge, no matter what. But challenging it on the offensive and having it in a in a in a declare you know in a declare declared judgment decree. Now you've got the evidence in your hand that any court you can bring into and have. Uh, exculpatory evidence, you know, on anything they bring you in that, that uh, you would challenge jurisdiction over.
Right. Well, uh, what was the name of that case law? Uh, Pitt, I, I'm about to read it for you and get you the site. But it's uh, the first case law is Bailey versus Alabama, 219 U.S. 219 of 1911, if you're looking for the Peonage Act. And then the second case law is Penn Hollow, P-E-N-H-A-L-L-O-W, versus Dones Administrators, and Dones is spelled D-O-A-N-E apostrophe S. Dones Administrators. Thank you. And You're welcome. And I'm going to tell you guys, uh, I just got to find out. The problem with doing this for a living is you get so many files, you can't remember where you put anything. When you get my age, it gets harder to do as time goes forward. Case laws... Yes. And the the Penn Hollow uh, one that that's where it's the quote is something like in so much as every person is an artificial entity, blah blah blah. Right. Yeah, that's yeah, right. Okay. Uh, but but what I want to read uh, specifically, and I want to give her the case site too. Uh, a, a primer for grand jury. What did I do with it? Uh, let me go up here, case law. Uh, uh, another one where uh, you've got two classes of citizens is Diet versus Turner, D-Y-E-T-T versus T-U-R-N-E-R. Everybody should read that case. It's listening to this, uh, just listening to this program. Uh, that's uh, Diet versus Turner, D-Y-E-T-T versus Turner is 439 P. 2nd, 266. That's cases. Utah, right? Uh, yes, uh, Supreme Court of Utah. All right, I found it. I found it. Here we go. Here we go, boys and girls. Pin hollow. Okay, here we go. Uh, first of all, it's a uh, it's a 1795 case, not a not an early 1800 or 1995 uh, or, or early 1900s. It's 1795. This case was, and the site is three U.S. 54, and this is what it says. It uh, quote unquote, inasmuch as every government is an artificial person an abstraction, and a creature of the mind only with other artificial persons. The imaginary, having neither actuality nor substance, is foreclosed from creating and attaining parity with the tangible. The legal manifestation of this is that no government, as well as any law, agency, aspect, court, etc., can concern itself with anything other than corporate artificial persons and the contracts between them. Now that's pretty powerful right there. They can't get around it. Nope. So you do a corporate uh, you do a corporate denial affidavit, which rises to the level of testimony. They won't rebut it. They'll just try to pass over it. But when you put this Penhollow versus Dones administrators in there at the end of it, they can ignore it. Now, Ed, I'd like you to help me with this, and I and I don't do this for any shape or case or form to be controversial. But this beautiful thing down here 
far, not far from me, about five minutes away, is called the Law Library that I went into, and I pulled up the Supreme Court um, uh, reporters, and I read this case, Penn Howell versus Wayne's okay. okay. administrators. I got into okay. the old part of the downstairs where they keep the old books. These are not to be t- checked out, and uh, they're in these floating cabinets that you press a button, they open up, and you go in, and there's old, the old books. And I read this case from front to back, and that case, that quote there is not in that case, not one time. And so I'm just throwing that out because I personally went to the source of the Supreme Court reporter to find this. Um, well, I got, I got that for you. I just didn't mention it. But here's where it came from. One limited edition, 57. And then before that, three Dow 54. Right. And that's what so I did. I went to Dallas. The, and that's what I Dallas. did. Yeah, that's what I did. I'm trying to tell you. I went into the um, these books, these publications at the law library and could not find that quote. That's what I'm trying to tell you. I did that. And I'm not the only one that, that said that. There's sites on people online saying, I can't find this quote. I'll pay 2500 for anyone who can find this quote in the case. Um, I'm just throwing it out here. Is I did the research and couldn't find that quote. And it wasn't to raise controversy. It's just my experience. So if you found it somewhere, I'm happy to, I'd be certainly happy to know that, not just putting okay. print on the Internet. Not on okay, the Internet. I'll send, I'll send it to you. Yeah, because I like to confirm that, and like I said, I don't, and I hope people understand my spirit here is not to be controversial. I would, it's an incredible quote, um, Ed. You know, it's okay. Okay, keep this in mind too. There's two Supreme Courts. So that what I'm talking about here, this law that came from 1795, came from the only Supreme Court in existence at that time, which was the Supreme Court of the United States, not the United States Supreme Court. And as I've told people on this show before, the United States Supreme Court is administrative. It's kind of like in 1999 when they changed, or I'm sorry, 1949 when they changed the name of the district courts of the United States to the United States District Courts. They're not the same court. So when you were doing your research... Well, yeah, I mean, they, they basically are because Rule 45 in the Supreme Court of the United States, where the 904 uh, farts reside, says that they uh, operate at the uh, direction of the president. So I don't know how, how it's possible. There's supposed to be three separate branches of government, but what they did with Rule 45 is they convoluted the two, administrative and judicial. Well, and then Congress the came in people. and made legislative cup. Uh, they, yeah, yeah, I know. Well, I know that. But uh, then the legislature, Congress came in and made legislative courts, Article One and Article Four. And and I basically, honestly believe that every court in Amer in the states are nothing more than tax courts, and they're taxing them people. Probate courts and bankruptcy courts. They're probating the dead entities, and they are uh, administrating the bankruptcy, uh, getting all the charges for the debtors, the peons. That's exactly what's going on. But 
again, utilizing declaratory judgment, a bond, not, not being insolvent like they are, uh, we have a remedy that doesn't require litigation or arguing. And I think, that, again, these points that you're bringing up are fantastic points to add to a declaratory judgment action. Um, instead of going another, in there and putting... Here's ahead, another one ahead. I found. Here's, a, here's another one I found. Cruden versus Neal. Neely, yeah. Uh, it yep. basically says the same thing. It just says it in a different way. Every man is independent of all laws except those prescribed by nature. He is not bound by any institutions formed by his fellow men without his consent. Yeah, that's on my uh, Facebook uh, picture that I, <laughs> Cruden v. Neely. It's, again, I mean, these are all good, good things to put in a brief where we would argue our, our, our claims in declaratory judgment. Again, you could put them in, you can make reference to them in an argument, but if you're going in and, and bringing, you know, turning it around, flip the table, become the prosecutor. Don't be the defendant. Don't go in there acting like the defendant. You go in there with, you know, with, with your crown on. <laughs> you know, now that Daniel said that, I'm, I'm just curious which, uh, I got it from one of the, you know, I only go to just the, uh, I go to a handful of them. But now I'm trying to remember where I got the quote from. Well, you might have got it from one of uh, the one fellow that goes online that we might both know, but I want to mention him here because um, he has a few misquotes, and it's in a lot of the Patriot um, sites that he quoted a lot. Um, but I, I purposely went to the law library for this reason, for that case, because I studied under a fellow years ago who told me, never trust anything you see on the Internet. Always get the hard copy and confirm everything and anything before you put it in writing. And he taught me that as a principle. So I was doing that for that because I was going to use that in a presentation, and, didn't, and I couldn't find it anywhere. So I may be the only one that's ever said that, and I'm not trying to be controversial. I just thought it sounded off. Uh, well, that, I, believe, I believed it, and I'll tell you why, because of Cruden versus Neal. Here's another part of Cruden versus Neal that I put down in my paper. A citizen of this country, before he can be subjected to the punishment of treason or to the disabilities consequent upon it, must be convicted by a jury of his neighbors upon the previous accusation of a grand jury of his neighbors, also upon a trial before a court appointed by law for the purpose of seeing that he has every legal advantage the law entitles him to. He is not to be deprived of his liberty or of his rights essential to its enjoyment, but by the law of the land. And what is the law of the land? Such acts of the legislature only as violate none of the rules laid down in the Constitution, such as allow the citizen the privilege there secured to him, acts inconsistent with the rights of free men as declared in the Constitution, which take away their constitutional privileges, which, in short, deprive a man of his life or the means of protection by an application to the laws of his country for redress of wrongs. Without a previous trial by jury and a conviction by them are not laws of the land. Such are acts not authorized by the Constitution. Therefore, they have no claim to the obedience or support of the citizens as laws. They are void. If I could jump in, um, I've, I've looked at both those cases, and I, I want to agree with Daniel. Um, the uh, the Penhollow 
one I, I could not find that either and I'm limited on on resources I mean I, I I did search for that in many ways trying to to find it and I could not uh, the Cruden versus Neil one I believe and I could have these reversed um, but I believe one of those was a statement by an attorney in the case it was not a statement uh, an opinion uh, rendered by a judge um, so you have to watch that something could be said in a case where you know an attorney said it or it was just you know cited by somebody uh, and or, or stated by somebody but it, it didn't have the backing for it now I don't know oh, this again, is <laughs> go ahead this, this is why I prefer if I'm going to put words in my documents, I prefer they be the word, uh, you know, out of the Bible rather than the opinions of judges and lawyers. Um, even though these cases are, um, you know, have, have some good declaratory value in that somebody actually won and, and, and uh, a quote like these would come out uh, of those cases is, you know, evidence that, we, you know, Again, more than one of us has, has thought that, you know, we're not peons, we're not slaves, we're not, you know, uh, we're not people, you know, that we're man or woman and, you know, that we're not uh, how they define us or their opinions of us. Well, it could I, I, be because I'm just thinking about uh, the Clearfield Trust Company versus the United States case now. Yeah, and I'm Clearfield Trust Company is a good one. Governments descend to the level of a mere private corporation and take on the characteristics of a mere private citizen, where private corporate commercial paper, Federal Reserve notes, and securities checks is concerned. For purposes of suit, such corporations and individuals are regarded as entities entirely separate from the government. There you I mean, go. I mean, kind of saying the same thing, but it's just in a different way. But, uh, yeah, I'm See, looking at a quote on here that Larry B. Craft traced it as a bogus quotation to a pre-Hendrickson edition of cracking the code and also determined that it was fake. In other words, it doesn't exist. That That's another one I've thoroughly or you know in my opinion I thoroughly researched it trying to find it and I could not find that quote okay so I think I'll, I think between the Clearfield Trust Company Cruden versus Neal and Diet versus Turner I could still make a strong ending to this paper that I wrote I haven't sent Absolutely. this paper to my colleagues yet but I'm going to tonight when we get off the call Ed I would I um I I like what you what you wrote. I'm just thinking rather than doing it as a response to a ticket that you put it in the in in the form of a declaratory judgment action and have all those rights declared before ever walking into the ticket. Now you go in and you go, "Nah, I don't think so." Here's, you know, <laughs> you, you failed to you failed to respond. Therefore, right. my rights have been decreed. You're done. This is over. There is no controversy. The rights of the parties have been declared. Right. So, no, I mean, I, 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 love what you, I love what you wrote. I just think that, that if you were to use it as a declaratory judgment and preempt them, 
in, in an offense, you know, going on the offense, you're flipping the table on them. So this way, when you go to court, it's, you already got the judgment. If there is right. any further I, action by the traffic court, you, you basically, you, you present it as exculpatory evidence. It's binding right. on all the courts. The declaratory decree is binding court action. Yes, subject to review, but review, but is binding. Right. I, I would just caution people, um, you know, and I mean, I, I read all these too, and you know, it's like, oh, this is great. But if you can't find the source, you know, if you submit this into a court in an affidavit or something, I mean, if if you can't have the original source, you could be committing perjury, also. You know. Yeah. Well, um, like I said, man, I was just I, w- I had just finished writing it. And so I'm glad that I was on the call tonight because uh, I would have used that one. It sounded better to me than the other two did. But I can yeah. use Cruden versus Neil. I mean, that'll that'll work sure. just fine. And then there was another one that I wrote down called uh, Hell versus Hinkle. Uh, no, but Hell versus Hinkle is a good one. Marion et al. DBA Marion and Bayless et al. versus Jusarilla uh, Apache Tribe et al. This was a, a 1928 Supreme Court case. Uh, I'm sorry, 1982 Supreme Court 394 and 455 U.S. 130, uh, where it says, to presume that a sovereign forever waives the right to exercise one of its powers unless it expressly reserves the right to exercise that power in a commercial agreement, turns the concept of sovereignty on its head. So essentially what that's saying is, you, you can't you, you can't hold me to a law. Oh, uh, well, I'll tell you what. I didn't tell you guys the best news. So I got this case coming up at the end of this month, this traffic case. So what I did, and, uh, I, you know, I'd like to let everybody know, I, I'm sorry I'm jumping around here, but my desk is full of stuff, but I wanted to share this with the group tonight. I got a letter back from the Supreme Court of the state of Georgia, and essentially what I did, and I think everybody should use this uh, because it's powerful. In every state, you have uh, either FOIA laws or requ- requests for uh, information. In every state, uh, you can put requests for information and put the state name, and they pretty much have a basic form. And I've noticed in the six or seven different states that I've done one of these for now that they all look the same. So I think they all copied off the same generic form that they use. But the nice thing about the request for information is if you send it to an agency or any any uh, governmental entity, they have three days to respond from the time they receive it. And, you know, if they put it in the mail three days later, later and you get it three days after that, that's fine, as long as they respond within three days. Uh, so anyway, I got this. I, what I did... Uh, I got a ticket back in January for no driver's license and no registration. So I put those two case laws or, or those two codes, those statutory codes, into this letter, and basically what I or into my request for information. And basically what I asked the Supreme Court is uh, is that I know that the the codes have been properly codified, but what I want to know is if they've deemed them as constitutional. So in a roundabout way, this is what they said. I received this letter May 25th, and uh, keep in mind, one of these codes is no driver's license. 
you know, and you read their statute and it says everybody shall have a, a driver's license. But this is what it said. Dear Mr. Signer, the Supreme Court of Georgia is a part of the judicial branch, which is not subject to the Open Records Act as defined by OCGA 50-18-70 at sequence from 2007. It is a well-established principle of law that the courts and other agencies of the judicial branch have a history of self-regulation and are not subject to the sunshine laws of Georgia. See uh, op-ed from Attorney General 79-24 in Fathers or Parents 2 versus Hunstein, 202 Georgia Appellate Court 716-717 of 1992. And then this is the last sentence. However... The court voluntarily asserts that it is not in possession of any certification of the constitutionality of OCGA subsection 40-2-8 or 40-5-20A. Sincerely, Teresa Barnes, clerk. So I'm going to put this, this letter into evidence and say, hey, uh, I think the statutes are an unconstitutional mandate. The Supreme Court says they don't recognize them as being constitutional. I think the claim's going to be on you to prove that they are. And then I'll use Hale versus Hinkle. <laughs> there you go. Well, I, I kind of like how Yeshua would always say, because Yeshua had the worst word for the lawyers. So when we're trying to use lawyer speak, I think that's a that's a slippery slope. But he he But he would say, does your law not say? I think that maybe might be a wiser course of action rather than, you know, submitting to their jurisdiction by quoting their rules. You know, that's at least that maybe that's how I see it. Correct me if I'm wrong, but um, it's a slippery slope. One of my favorite questions and one that never gets asked in court, and I've been to courts all over the nation, is this. What facts do you have that these statutes apply to me? They cannot answer that question. That that goes back to um, the uh, the Freedom of Information Act thing. Um, I yes. know in Minnesota, uh, you know they they have if if it, it's called a data uh, whatever something data something act, um, but. You, if it's information directly about you, they have 10 days to respond. If not, they have 30 days to respond, and then uh, I believe 90 days to gather the information, um, you know, or a reasonable time frame depending upon what you're asking for. Um, the thing about it is, if at least in Minnesota, and I've been through this a couple of times, um, if you have removed your voter record and claim to not be a citizen of the corporate state in Minnesota, you have absolutely no um, uh, uh, right to, to get that data. Because, so to me, that's telling me in one way they don't recognize you right up until they want to bring you into their courts. Then they will, and then you've got to fight your way out of it. But if you're not a registered voter, in Minnesota, for the corporate state of Minnesota, you have no access to that data. Well, uh, I would send them a copy of Dye versus Turner and tell them I disagree. There's two classes of citizens. They're saying that they only uh, give access to one. 
I, mean, I, I, I would. A state citizen. I can't be a state citizen and a U.S. citizen at the same time. Yep, and I, you know, I I would agree with that, and I think that's they're telling us in their own, you know, words corporate that way is, in their own corporate way that they're only going to yep. cater to to their slaves. Yep. Yep. Okay. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was going to just mention that the the voter registration actually comes back in proper pronoun uh, form, capital and then small letters. Well, the thing about the voter registration in every state is that you have to swear under penalty of perjury that you're a U.S. citizen to vote. So the last yeah, thing any of us want to be is a registered voter. That's the last thing we want to be. Yeah, and, uh, and they're different in any way. To, to finish the information request, though, I also got a letter from the Department of Motor Vehicles back because I sent them one at the same time, and they put theirs in the mail a day later. And, uh, and just so everybody uh, is aware of this, they probably still call it DMV where you're at, but Georgia about four years ago changed the Department of Motor Vehicles to the Department of Driver Services. So it's called DDS now instead of DMV, but it's the same thing. And this is what, regarding open records request and corresponding registering vehicles in Georgia, correspondence reg of registering vehicles in Georgia. Dear Mr. Signer, this letter is in response to your correspondence and open records request received on 5-18-2021, uh, respectively, wherein you ask for guidance regarding whether you are required to register your automobile in Georgia and sought records regarding certification by the Supreme Court of Georgia of OCGA uh, sections 40-2-8 and 40-5-28. The Department of Driver Services, now, now listen to this, this is rich, and I'm definitely putting this into evidence. The Department of Driver Services is not responsible for the registration of vehicles and cannot give legal advice. As stated on the DDS website, please direct all questions about registering vehicles or driver's license to the Georgia Department of Revenue Motor Vehicle Division. You can visit their website at blah, blah, blah. We hope that this response is helpful to you. Please contact the legal division of DDS if you have any further questions. Well, I sent it to the Office of General Counsel for DDS. So that's who answered me. Uh, but I just thought that was uh, funny that the Department of Revenue are the ones that actually collect the money. And I'll bet you if you get one of these letters back from uh, your Department of Motor Vehicles, you're probably going to find the same thing. If, um, if, if, if you do a, a request um, through, and, and I don't, it doesn't matter what state you're in, you can't ask questions. Um, you, know, how, you know, how does this apply to me? Uh, the, then it takes it out of the data request. That's why they can send you to another agency. Um, what what you have to do is ask for all data uh, information relating to uh, the requirement of me being a say a traveler uh, re required required to have a driver's license. Um, you can't ask what 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 statute is it. Or what law is it that requires me this? That takes it out of a an information data request. 
Well, I got a I got a response from the DMV here in New York to the question: Is a person with a Class D license, which that's just the license of the normal person, not a commercial license, is a person with a Class D license permitted to operate a motor vehicle? And their response was yes, as long as they are accompanied by a licensed driver. So because you can travel in your everyday car by yourself without being accompanied by a licensed driver, if you already have a Class D license, that means that your everyday car is not a motor vehicle. And that was straight from the DMV. Does a Class D license have a weight a weight class on the back of it? If it has any kind of weight class, it's obvious, it's already commercial. Yeah, all of them do. They're they're around twenty six thousand pounds. Yeah, no, twenty six thousand. If you asked about the license, and and you know, I mean, then then you've already accepted that you're under that code or the statute. No, no, no. But yeah, but the but the point being is is that the everyday car is not a motor vehicle. And because it's not a motor vehicle, you don't need a license to operate it, and you don't need to register it or insure it. Well, yeah, it is a motor. Let me let me say this: it is a motor vehicle because all it needs is an engine and four wheels to be a motor vehicle. In the, the federal definition, the federal definition says it has to be used for commercial purposes. Right. Yeah, but I, here's the way that they trick you in the states: they have two definitions. They have the definition of motor vehicles, which is the one everybody goes by, which is a word of art definition. But then on further down in the definitions, it's got the definition for the word vehicle. And that's where you're going to find the word transported or transportation in that definition. Man, well, I think they just screwed themselves because it's, it's not even a vehicle. It's an automobile. It's a used automobile, which is commercial, which is household goods definition from the IRS. You know, my, definition of it is, my definition of it is it's mine. Right. <laughs> and I, it was uh, it was Tish that found the uh, she found in her one of her classes in law school. It, it's had something to do with the IRS, but the IRS considers uh, children as property. It's the only place I've ever found a definition. I knew children were property of the lawful biological parents, but I could never find any case law on it. She found it uh, with the with the IRS codes. Yeah, I, I've got out. it somewhere. I don't remember. It's also that, in the Bible. Yeah, and it's also <laughs> in the Bible, right? Which, uh, you know, they're so. Uh, but I did want to tell the guy this: the reason that it's twenty six thousand or more pounds for a Class D uh, license is so that the judge can presume that you're operating in commerce. No, but That's a class why they D made it so high. The Class D license is like anything under 26000 or even under 10000 something like that. Well, I think in Georgia it's called a Class C license, and it's the, it's the, the average license that everybody has. Okay, well, that's, yeah, that's what we got, too. It's like... Under 26,000 pounds, I think it is. I don't use one of those anymore. The way the statute (laughs) reads here in other states is up to 
26,000 pounds. Right, but because but because it's not a motor vehicle, you don't need a license. But do you have that license? Do I have that license? Yeah. No, I don't have it. It's revoked. <laughs> so there's no more contract. Right. But the reason why you would actually need a license is if you wanted to go out of town and rent a car. For You know, you'd need a license. So, you know, that, that's really the only reason why you would need one. And, and that's really Uber. a class action lawsuit against the, against the rental cars and the and the truck rental companies because they're requiring people to rent a license to move their household goods, and you don't need a license, so they're committing a crime, by, or they're they're violating your rights by requiring a license. Either a private company making a private uh, term of contract, you can either agree or disagree on that level. Uh, certainly, would uh, a point of contention there. I wanted to address a, a couple of things before Dave closes call down because I know that we're stretching his normal limit there. Um, the uh, Department of Revenue and the License Bureau being one of the same. The reason why that is is because <clears throat> the, the, the one who issues the license is, is doing the only thing that they're statutorily allowed to do as far as incoming is collect the tax. And they're a tax collector, and the Department of Revenue is the, the tax collection agent. And what they're doing is they're collecting the revenue on people that had either an occupational license or a recreational license are paying the taxes to the de- Department of Revenue. And those occupational licenses are what you call a driver's license. It falls under that. You can find this in the child support um, uh, statutes of the state where they define the, um, uh, the ability to take away the, um, uh, the, the occupational and, and uh, recreational licenses for people that are failed in their child support um, purported payments. And so those are the two licenses that the state tax collector tax- collects taxes on. And so, the, so what you're paying is you're paying the tax on the uh, privilege to operate a specific person within the state, and that's known as a driver, and you pay a tax for the privilege of that, and your driver's license is the proof of the receipt of the tax. That's your receipt. That's what you've left there with, that you've paid the tax, and you carry it with you for the function of that particular service, which is a very specifically defined uh, role within the state, a driver. You're agreed to be a driver in the state under certain uh, terms, but you're not a driver for all purposes. I mean, you know, the same way that you're not a, uh, you have a fishing license, when you're bowling, you're not using your fishing license. And uh, when you're waiting, you're not using a fishing license. So your, your um, driver's license is for when you're driving. I wanted to address that was number one. The other thing I wanted to share is that Rule 5.1 in the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure give us a, a platform of where, where, wherewithal to make a constitution, constitutional challenge to a statute and how to raise those constitutional statute uh, uh, challenges to a statute. Um, and it, it talks about the Attorney General of the state being the one that uh, has to receive the constitutional challenge of the constitutionality of a statute. And the last thing I wanted to say was, I just wanted to say for Chad's sake, because he was asking about the declaratory judgment on relation to um, uh, debts and earlier on before we uh, talked about traffic, it's kind of going backtracking. But what I really wanted to say about Bailey, Alabama, was the case itself, what it was about. And I'm just going to try to do my, my uh, best to remember it, but basically it was a black man who had was indentured to a particular um, uh, job in, uh, in Alabama. Alabama. And around 1911... 
and he was indentured, indentured, he got paid. This was the part I wanted them to hear. Go ahead and say the story if you remember it, because I was asking you to say that earlier. The story is really really cool. It brings it home. Yeah, well, he he got $15, uh, so a contract. You know, they have consideration. You know, you have an agreement, and there there was a contract. And I don't remember what what happened to the guy, but because he took the $15, then he said he wasn't going to do the work. And they found him guilty, and then it went all the way up to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court said, well, no, you can't. You can't find him guilty. Now, for, I, the part I don't remember about the story, Daniel, is why he didn't perform the field labor. I, I think it had something to do with the conditions or what you know the way they were treating them back then. This was a this was a black guy in, in 1911, or I'm sorry, uh, yeah, ni- uh, 1911, Alabama. So I I don't remember exactly what what they the reason he wouldn't do it, but they ended up overturning it. And then, uh, because of the Pe- the uh, the Peonage Act of 1867, they said they're compelling him into servitude. And actually, uh, the lower court in Alabama, or the appeals court in Alabama, found him guilty and charged him thirty dollars as a fine on top of the fifteen dollars that he owed. But when it got to the Supreme Court, they overturned it. They overturned the decision. And here, and here, walk free. Yeah, Ed, Ed, here's the thing that, that I think is important to say this. The United States Supreme Court found that holding a person criminally liable for taking money for work not performed was akin to indentured servitude outlawed by the 13th Amendment, and that's what that particular uh, case brought out. And it, okay, you know, and a traffic ticket without an injured party is the same thing. That's the same thing. They're holding you to a contract that you do not have to uh, obey. Anything with an no injured without party. an injured party. Right. Anything without an injured party. Right, which is why I did the Peonage Act. You know, I, I applied this uh, this letter I'm going to send you guys tonight. I applied it to uh, – I'm going to take Penhallow out of there, but uh, I applied it to traffic tickets, but it could be applied to a whole host of issues. It could be applied to credit cards or hospital bills, or anything like that. Absolutely. Can I ask you a question? So, sure. Yeah. Let me... Uh, okay. Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. I was going to... Okay. Yeah, go ahead. Okay, so one's a comment, one's a question directed towards Ed. Uh, the first uh, comment is um, you were saying how uh, things, you know, doing things under penalty of perjury, uh, affidavits under penalty of perjury. Well, we, we just recently saw what the effect of affidavits truly, under penalty of perjury truly are worth in the works of Zilch um, with this uh, President Trump issue and uh, where he had over 1,000 affidavits under penalty of perjury declaring what happened about the whole voter fraud schemes and everything else. And the courts, came back and said that you have no evidence. Those affidavits didn't do squat. And my comment with that is because, well, James 5.12 says, above all things, swear not, neither by heaven or earth or anything underneath, and that your yea be yea and your nay be nay. So 
what is the real true strength of declaring something under penalty of perjury? When you actually do something under penalty of perjury, you're taking yourself out of God's trust, out of his realm, and you're putting yourself under them being a peon because you're putting okay. yourself under them. It's a, it's a great question. I'll answer it the best way that I know how. I noticed about 15 years ago that when they started putting the officers on the stand, that they stopped making them swear in. Did anybody else notice that, Daniel or David? <clears throat> they didn't have to. They didn't have to swear in. They didn't have to swear. Yeah, they say that their oath is already. They already have their oath on file. Is what they say. Yeah, but I never saw it. As a matter <laughs> of fact, I was looking at the. Uh, my there's uh, oaths for different officers of my state, and it, everybody has them. Every state has them. But the oath for the sheriff, I was shocked to find out a couple of days ago that there's not one mention of the word constitution or uphold, protect, defend for the sheriff's oath. And in addition to that, there's a Georgia appellate case that says if the sheriff's not sworn in in the state of Georgia, his acts are still considered lawful. If he doesn't have an They're oath. operating under assumptions and presumptions, Ed. They always do. Yeah, this is what I'm talking about. So the reason uh, I said do it in affidavit form for the the uh, the guy that's asking is because in their law, in commercial law, it rises to the level of testimony when you do a, a, a notarized affidavit under penalty of perjury. If you don't do that, then they can just disregard it. And or actually, you use two or three witnesses, which is what we do. Right. I want to go a little bit further than that, too, because I've been studying this. Uh, because, like, in our child support enforcement actions with Chris and I, we do an affidavit for every motion to dismiss. We, we back it up with an affidavit. I noticed on your uh, declaratory judgment you guys did an affidavit. But the actual word that we want to use, I think, is either declaration or affirmation. You know, I don't, uh, an affidavit is kind of also what the, the gentleman asked the question about why do it under penalty of perjury. Now, what I don't understand is why the Supreme Court said that they have no evidence because an, a, a sworn affidavit rises to the level of testimony. That's one of the maxims of law. So why did they tell him that he, they had no evidence? Do you know? Well, they never I got the court. It never yeah, got wouldn't that be because somebody would have to test to the affidavit. It didn't make it to the court because it said they said they didn't have sufficient evidence. Well, that's what I'm asking. If a sworn affidavit rises to the level of testimony, then that would be prima facie evidence, wouldn't it? Well, you just made it an if statement. So that shows you that it's not. Well, we know the court system is corrupt. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, then, then look at Trinzi versus Pagliaro. Um, you know, I mean, if, if you just have an attorney bringing an affidavit in of uh, hundreds of thousands of other people, that still is not enough to grant a summary judgment or anything like that. There has yeah, or to be it could, it could be that even though he swore, it could be that even though... Uh, Trump swore on it. He didn't have firsthand knowledge of those events. This is just what no, he no, was no, no. told. No, no, no. I'm talking about. I'm talking about the people 
who had firsthand knowledge who were there, they made these sworn affidavits. And they gave them to, uh, what was the attorney's name? Uh, Giovanni? Mayor Giovanni, the whatever. Oh, yeah. Giuliani. Giuliani, Giuliani. yeah. So these guys who had firsthand personal knowledge are making these affidavits, sworn under the penalty of perjury, thousands of them, or around a thousand, whatever the exact number was. But even with that, there's no evidence that was sufficient for the court to hear the case. That that goes back to Trenzi versus Pagliaro, because even though no matter all these people bring it to an attorney, the attorney cannot bring it to the court and use it as evidence because then he is acting as the witness instead of the attorney. Right. There's no first-hand well, knowledge. Yeah. So how they got to bring the affiants in. How come nobody's using an abatement? I've never, I've never used one personally. I've never used one. But then again, I've never lost one of my cases. So, but I guess it, it, the concept works. I mean, the concept, the concept should works. work. Yes. So should it. It's worked. So should the bill of it's... particulars. <laughs> so so should the stuff that we're talking about. But the problem is, and I I tell my clients this all the time: you can have the best paperwork in the world, and they will not be able to answer your questions. But if you don't know how to deal with them when you're in court, they're going to run right over you. And exactly. I tell people that all the time because most people that come to me, they don't understand that. You know, for the longest time, and I've told both Daniel and David this, for the longest time I thought, well, at least we have the judicial, uh, the judicial branch. At least we've got one honest form of government. And then I found out, like in a stark contrast, like overnight, like somebody batted me over the head, We've got just the opposite. They're nothing but they're nothing but revenue collectors, and they're all working together. So yes, an abatement should work. Uh, an abatement this should is work. Why, this is why I believe this declaratory judgment. One, it brings you to the top of the docket. Two, it flips the table. You're the prosecutor; they're the defendant. If they don't yeah. respond to the questions in there, then you're declaration is decreed it's over it's done judgment is rendered and they don't even have to they don't have to answer but they but you will get your judgment see the problem with sending in a bill of particulars that you know that they're not going to respond to which means they disregard and yes you can go and get an appeal but why wait all that time who wants to spend any time in court have your rights declared Add all these same questions to a declaratory judgment, and and again, if they don't answer, you win. You don't have to go back to court with them. So, again, this is something that, um, you know, Daniel and I feel very strongly about as far as uh, an opportunity to be able to literally preemptively strike if you know if it's something new as far as the case goes or something to finally go in and say hey uh do my kids belong to the state of california or do they belong to me and it's just like a quiet title action you you're putting in the claim 
anybody else that's going to come by and claim something has got to answer all your questions and provide evidence of their claim, their right, title, and interest in your property, in your child. And if they don't do it, you get your kids back. No more waiting around for judges to cut you off and tell you you can't put stuff in your pile. Well, the beauty of an abatement is it never goes into the court case at all. It goes to the office of DA or county attorney. It goes to the office of clerk of court. And it goes to the presiding judge of each county. Right. But in an abatement, I've used abatements, and, and, and they look at it like a motion. Okay? And they're either yeah. going to acknowledge it or they're not. With the declaratory judgment action, they have to acknowledge it. Otherwise, yes. they lose. And they lose, okay. lose. You get your judgment, and it's not objectable. It stands in any court. Well, let, let me just ask the lady, have you had any luck with the abatements? Yes. Okay, That's tell, Linda, me, tell me a story. Oh, Linda. Oh, hi, Linda. Hi. Tell me a, <laughs> tell me a story. Tell me a, an abatement story that you, you dealt with that worked. Well, one abatement story is uh, several years old, and I don't remember all the details, and... Um, it stopped um, all the process on the court cases I had in the county. And I only had three small ones. I had uh, a divorce um, action. I had um, two other um, name actions, and they were all suspended. They were all stopped. Well, and I've never heard of well, the abatement was basically asking them a question and or asking a series of three questions. If they can't answer one question, then then that negates all three. And it was a single it was a single page rather than uh, twenty or thirty pages that some abatements usually take. And it happened in Arizona, and. Um, this one client, um, well, this one person um, scheduled an abatement, and I um, wrote it for her, and she copied it and then took it into the office, and she never did um, she never did uh, contest it. What I mean by that is they just kept coming back at her with um, uh, different Rebuttal. questions. Yes, and she didn't know that she could continue to abate those until they get tired of it. Now, I never heard of a declaratory judgment, but that makes good sense to me. Um, well, we're getting ready uh, to <laughs> well, good, but I wouldn't put it in a court action. I would send it, send one to the um, 
to the attorney, uh, the main attorney, and send it to the uh, clerk of court and send it to the presiding judge. I wouldn't put it in an action. It is an action within itself. It's its own action. It's yes. A, it's a lawsuit. Yes. It's a lawsuit. So basically you're preemptory starting a lawsuit against whoever the other actors are. Yes. And you're basically going in there and, uh, you know, you're, you're asking your questions and you're demanding a declaratory action, a declaratory judgment, um, because, and again, they're not going to answer the questions. I know you got on Lateland, and I will send you, uh, I don't know if you can listen to it yet. I'll, I'll send you a recording um, like I normally do. But I can get online now. <laughs> so I'll be able to get everything that you've sent to me. Thank you. Awesome. Yeah, I'll send you a recording because we went through all of it, and we went through it uh, step by step. Uh, throughout the beginning of the call. So I'll send you over the recording so you have that, and uh, it'll give you a better understanding of what we've been talking about here as far as declaratory judgment actions go. Um, do you go into court with a declaratory judgment, or do you just offer it to the, the county attorney the, the, or whatever you file, attorney? You're... You file it into the clerk's office as an action. A new lawsuit. Yes. Okay. So the same way that you would go to the federal court and file a complaint, you're filing an action, you're filing the declaratory judgment action, same in the state courts. Okay. So what, I mean, that doesn't mean that you have to go into the courtroom. You're going into the clerk's office. Yes. And then you're going to also you're also going to summons or serve it on any of the any of the other parties. So if it's a municipality, yes. the municipality and all its agents get subpoenaed or you know uh, the opportunity to uh, answer and or rebut your questions. Yes, and basically we're going in as the authoritative um agents for Heavenly Father and not for any of them. Right. We're bringing a private action. Yes. It's not public. It's not public. Okay. It'll be declared to the public once it's done, but it isn't a public action. This is to get the... It, 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 if you're in the middle of a case, it can move you into equity. Yes. Okay, but we want to bring equity, so we're bringing the case in the form, of, you know, for inexclusive equity. So when we do that, we're setting the jurisdiction. Yes. We we pick the law. We get to know, we, we we're the ones that get to pick the law. It's our record. It's our court, not theirs. Yes, and that's the difference in between going in the way that you do, David, and, and the way that uh, some others do when they've already started a court case and don't know how to take it into equity, into, into oh. heavenly equity. Yep. And there's a difference in between heavenly equity and worldly equity. Well, statutory, statutory equity is just as much of a fiction as the government. 
and, and yes. or any of the corporations when it's created. Yes. So, yeah, there's no activity. It's a fiction. Right, Ed? You've just seen that. <laughs> yes, it, yes, and uh, uh, I'm trying to build up my heaven equity as much as I can because I know that equity is real. <laughs> right, exactly. Exactly. Anyway, guys, I want to open it up uh, one last time. We're almost an hour over uh, that, we, that we normally go, and I have no problem with that because it's been a great call. Um, there's a lot of folks on here. If there's somebody who hasn't talked already that has a question that they need answered, um, please bring it up now, and we're, I'm happy to entertain your question. I have a question. I have a question. At what level or how high can you go when you tape the season the fist route? I'm sorry? Uh, how high do you normally go when you tape the season the fist route at 10 to 2? Uh, notice the agent is notice the principal. And when it comes to... Uh, authorities or or um the latter there uh of you know it always goes uphill so uh, i just served the queen of england or the woman with the corgis who claims to be the the, the queen of england uh the uh, prime minister and all the heads of state but it's because their agents are out of out of uh <laughs> you know out of control and some of them are out of control. Well, all of them are out of control. They're all narcissists. They all are megalomaniacs that want to rule over everything. So, you know, how high can you go? Sky's the limit. Right to the top of the Babel, you know, the Babel uh, ladder. You know, I told you guys this months ago, and I and I firmly believe it now. I believe, and and this is from everything that I've seen over the past, probably six months, and it's just getting worse and worse. I believe that it the word has come from on high, and most likely Congress, that they are they are telling these judges in these courts to, they don't care if they violate your due process, just get the money. And I really believe that because they are doing some, uh, they are doing some really stuff I've never seen before. I mean, I, uh, judges telling my clients that uh, they don't have any constitutional rights. I'm talking about judges, superior court well, judges. And again, this is why it's important not to play patty cakes with these people. Slap them with the declaratory judgment action and, and, and just let them acquiesce. <laughs> They'll, you know, they're not going to answer the questions, Ed. Yeah. They're not. Well, well uh, that affidavit that you put with it, uh, do, do y'all do that with a, uh, a notary or, or I, I haven't looked at the affidavit yet. The I don't use any of their public document. I don't use any of their public people to write on my documents. Right, I'm asking prefer- about their declaratory judgment, though. What's in the you affidavit? Can go- Daniel, you want to take that? Or, uh... There is no affidavit in there. There's a claim. Yes. And, and um, we didn't use the um, AF by, you know, defeat or whatever that is, uh, some kind of defeat. Um, 
we just did a property description of, with a claim. Uh, there is a claim on there. And uh, okay. I'm, I'm, thinking, I'm thinking that the way, you, the way I look at it in all of this whole scheme of things is that the claim is the highest thing that can be made uh, an affidavit to test to a, you know a claim is um, I'm like you stake your claim to property. Um, it's as a trustee. I I try to share with the people that I was sharing this with that like say your father gifted you um, the original or one of the original Rolls Royces is worth like thirty billion dollars and he gave it to you and then somebody by some craft and trickery uh, has uh, taken it away and warehoused it in point B and took it out of your possession but you know he gave it to you and you have a claim. I mean, how are you going to express that claim? And David says, you know, it's mine. I mean, that's what it was. So I just got, I got a, we didn't put declaration, affidavit, or any of those words on there, and uh, it's not in the particular document as such. Well, and I, prefer use, I prefer oh. personally to use two or three witnesses. Yes. <laughs> it establishes the matter. Uh, and, and witnesses you can bring into court. A notary does nothing for you. Right, and that's in, but that's in number. What he's talking about, though, would be, would it be apropos for what we have with the documentation or the court of record that went in it, and that was the judicial notice of private trust because that was part of the documents that were the court of record that the, the declaratory judgment stood on, and that was his, uh, of sort his affidavit of, of his to him and his maker of the indenture in there. And then there's a notice of cease and desist and intent to sue that goes on to more describe it and it's stop on default judgment. But there's also the life claim, the notice of the calling allegiance and election, choice of law, lawful money, citizenship in heaven, profession of faith. There's that document that each individual have, will have to describe who they are in relation to who they are. And, um, you know, answer the two questions that Jesus went to his disciples on the way to Caesarea and said, who do men say that I am, and who do you say that I am? Those two questions are answered, and it's uh, detailed out there. So um, you, uh, I think it covers the, uh, the point of without actually using the word affidavit. Although, David, your judicial notice of private trust says an affidavit, correct? It is in the form of an affidavit, and it requires two or three witnesses. And, and again, I don't use, you know, uh, now if I have to do a jurat from, say, a bond, we may use a, 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 a uh, you know, may use a notary for that. Um, but there's a reason for that. For anything that I put into the courts personally, I use witnesses because witnesses can be called upon to testify. Uh, a notary isn't going to do anything. And, uh no. So two or three witnesses establishes a matter, and that includes my affidavit. Not only can a witness come in and testify to the the body or the or the substance of the affidavit, um, where a notary can't, um, you know, uh, it, it, it's and again we also use a bond. So you know we're we're putting our money where our mouth is. We're putting uh, you know our truth out there. We're saying this is the truth. Uh, you know, so help me God, and, and he's a, these are witnesses to that, okay? And here's a bond backing up in case, uh, you know, my claim, uh, I lose my claim. Well, I, I was using, 
I was using the wrong word. Um, it's a brief in support of the declaratory judgment. I didn't know what I was asking. What was in that? Not that at all. It's just a brief. Just a brief. Is it got case law? In and it? it does and can. Okay. Absolutely, it okay. can. Okay. Go uh, go ahead, uh, ma'am. I didn't mean to cut you off. No, that's okay. And I just had a quick question. Um, when signing documents, what color ink should be used? Because I've heard different Which opinions. Pen work. <laughs> yep. I use a, I use blue ink, and I always sign my signature with a capital C, small f period in front of. Which uh, is Latin. It means to confer, but the English translation means to compare. And the nice thing about doing the CF period in front of your name is you're the one that tells them what they have to compare your signature to. And I always say, like, the state constitution, the federal constitution, the Bill of Rights, the Declaration of Independence, the Articles of Confederation, and the Northwest Treaty of 1787. But you can tell them whatever, you, whatever you're signing. Let's say you're uh, endorsing the back of a check, and you put CF period and then your regular handwritten signature then uh, you tell them, if you ever have to go to court about a check, what they need to compare your signature to, and there's nothing they can do about it. You're the one that decides what they have to compare your signature to. Uh, same thing with a driver's license. If you go to get a driver's license, put the CF period in front of your name. Uh, I don't think they're going to let you put all rights reserved and UCC 1-308 and all that other stuff in there anyway. So, But they never catch the My CF time? period. My son put, under threat of force and coercion, on, right on the license signature. And they didn't catch it? <laughs> oh, they, they caught it. There wasn't anything they could do about it. Mm -hmm. That was his mark. You could put it in crown. It doesn't matter the color, personally. Again, it's your document. You're the author. I know what the color, the color stands for, though. I've heard people say that the red red ink is like the, the blood of a living man. Yeah. Then I've also heard that um, putting your thumbprint in red is also like your blood. Form yeah, over like substance. Form yeah, over like substance. Yeah, like on the, uh, on the yes. security bond that they're talking about with the 21 pieces of silver. Uh, I was told it's best to do that with the thumbprint and red ink, you know, beside your own, the touching your signature. Uh, you know, I don't know how much weight I put into into that, but I, kn I do know this. A maximum of law is whoever owns the bond owns the case. And <laughs> if you put your bond in and you say, okay, now where's your bond, and they don't have one, then you get to tell them how the case is going to end because you own it. Now, when you're referring to a bond, are you referring to like a birth certificate? No, 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 no. Now, we put in a uh, bond, and I'm assuming that both uh, Daniel and David have seen it. Uh, I put one into the criminal Daniel case. Daniel created it. Oh, okay. All right. Well, and I did, I did a separate one for the uh, criminal case for the guy that we're talking about, and he put that in before the last uh, – before the, they ignored it, so on appeal – uh, now he's got it. He's he's got uh, at least a new trial coming because if if it goes to appeal, he's at least got a new trial coming because they never produced the bond. 
see, here's how it works. They have to, the opposing counsel has to put a bond into the case to protect the defendant's rights or the respondent's rights or the parent's rights or whoever it is that they're going against, making a claim against. And the court has to make sure that that bond is in place. But if you put a bond in on your side and then you ask them where their bond is and they don't produce it, now you don't have uh, equity. Equity is, is absent. It's missing. It's not there. And not only that, the court's not uh, doing what they're supposed to be doing, and that's been my contention the whole time. They're bringing these cases, but think about it. How many bonds can a, can a uh, bankrupt corporation have at one time? Open. Not that many. Well, their bond isn't backed by anything but fiat bankrupt currency anyway, so they're insolvent no matter what bond they bring. Right, yeah. and, and you know if they bring a bond, it's going to be in Federal Reserve notes, so, you know, that... Right, it's not a bond. It's again. not truly a bond, because it's in, you can't pay a debt with a debt. No. And that's two strikes against them. By just putting a bond into the case and then asking them or demanding from them, show me your bond. Here's my bond. Where's yours? Yeah. Uh, did so you all do a 21 piece uh, of silver? Bond. Did y'all do a 21 piece yeah. of silver bond? Okay. I needed that document right. a bunch of years back. It's been all over the Internet. What did you say, yeah. David? I said, did, said you were the one that created that bond a bunch of years back, and it's been all over the Internet. Well, that I'm not sure which one Ed is talking about, unless it is the same one with the um, Bishop bond around the outside edge. Uh, paperwork. If he's using the same one, it might be the one that I put together. The silver bond. Yeah, it was a twenty-one dollar silver bond. It was a probate bond, and there's uh, it was, it was, it was that's what that was called. What did your say, Ed? Uh, it's called a bond and a, and a surety because what happens is the twenty-one pieces of silver become the surety instead of the defendant. It, it might be a so, different bond, David. I, mean, I just want to say, and I'd like to see the one you're talking about, Ed, because we also have one that I created that was successful. Okay, well, the... Share it on. Love to see it. <laughs> anyway, we did have a couple other people that were at, wanting to ask questions. If you want to do that, please go ahead and do that now. Uh, this is Jake. Uh, it's funny. Uh, I still haven't. Since I put my verified claim in, I still haven't got a response from the last hearing. They will not respond to your verified claim. Daniel, I'm back. Did you wanna... I had to dial. I had to dial back in, guys. Sorry about that. I, it dropped. No problem. Daniel, that was right when I answered Well, I was going to address Ed. That was right when I was asking you to please share your um, 21 silver dollar uh, bond, and I'd like I'll, I'll pass the one that I did a number of years back on to you. We could just um, I'd like to see that one. There's a public uh, request. Yeah, I would. Please, please, the re please, the please pass it on. Yeah, I will. I'll send it to Daniel, and he knows everybody. Uh, 
the one I the reason I use the one I did is because it's either fourteen or fifteen pages long and it covers everything they could possibly come up with uh, for for not producing their bond. So I will uh, I'll I'll be sure to send that to actually I'll do that while y'all are answering this question about his uh, verified claim. He's not talking about the verified claim that uh, John and I did, is he? For care and custody of a child. It's, it's similar. It's similar. Uh, Daniel, you helped. That was Jake, by the way, that asked the okay. question. Yeah, go ahead and ask yeah, the question again, Jake. I think he was asking the oh. group or just me because he talks to me all the time. So I think he was asking I the group. I wasn't really asking. I was just sharing what happened since my last hearing. Uh, since I put the verified claim in, the judge never made a ruling, never made an order. He never responded to that verified claim. The only thing I received was from the attorney, the guardian ad litem. How long has your verified claim been on the record? About two, three, two weeks. Okay, so they still got time. But what you should do right now is you should put in an order to show cost. This is my claim, and I'm, I'm putting it up against your claim. They can't answer that claim if you use my claim because it's a constitutional claim and you're in, a, you're in an unconstitutional court. Yeah. But you do an order to show cause, you force their hand. They, they, they at least have to respond to it. Well, the declaratory, <laughs> the declaratory judgment brings them back into equity, and equity uh, will not allow a statute to be a cloak for fraud. Yeah. There's a lot of ways you can use this declaratory judgment as a tool in any, almost any case, in almost any situation, which is why I really like it. Along well, with these I'll, other I'll, documents, build the case. I want to share with the gentleman, though, that uh, Tish put one in in a, diff in a separate court, in a civil court, okay, a different court than the family court, and uh, they heard it. Now, I haven't heard the end of it yet, what happened at the end of it, and I don't know if she's gotten a response back yet, but the judge denied the two uh, – the, there, there are two other fathers involved, uh, and I think it's like three children that she put the – the uh, claim in, but the, both the fathers hired the same attorney. He didn't respond in time to the uh, verified claim. Uh, she put in a default judgment, and now they're going to be hearing it. If they haven't already heard it, they're going to be hearing it soon. And the judge uh, dismissed both uh, opposition papers that came from the attorney that represented the other two, uh, the other two fathers because they didn't answer in time, so she denied it. So now they're going to be hearing the claim, and this is the first one we're going to get heard in the civil court since we came up with the idea. And you know, keep keep calling in, and and I'm sure you'll you'll get the uh, results of whatever that's going to be. That's all I had to say. Absolutely. Any other questions or comments before we wrap it up here for the night? I, I had a question, uh, David. Can you hear me? Yep. Go ahead, Frank. Okay. When I got in about um, 30 minutes ago or 35 minutes ago, I think I heard um, Miss Linda say uh, something about 
um, were you guys in the declaratory judgment in found it into the court case or not? No. It's a separate action. It's a separate action. You don't want the judge that's already biased against you to have anything to do with it, first off. Yes. So you're going to go in, and it's a, it's a new action. You're, you're filing a lawsuit, Frank, with the declaratory judgment. And all the other parties have got to respond or your rights are declared. And then you can bring those rights. The, you can bring that judgment back into that case and pretty much as use it as exculpatory evidence in that other case. Is that being filed in the state or, or, or the federal district court? Well, I'm going to no. send you the recording because all of these can be done either under the federal act or under the Uniform Act for your specific state. Um, yeah. And again, you can file it in the state court or you can file it in the federal court. And it all depends, uh, you know, with the situation. And your situation, um, being that the judge keeps throwing it out, all your stuff that you put in and, and ignoring you, I would suggest that you use the one that we sent to you that is designed for the federal government considering you were considering trying to get them to move it or remove it from the state court into the federal court anyway. Okay. All right. All right. Thank you. Thank you for that. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll listen to the recording. Okay. And, and again, you're going to have to change things to, you know, to support your situation, but the formatting is all there. But my question is that when you, File it when okay when you say file it into the court to me I'm 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 thinking that that's actually going to the clerk of court and getting it file stamped. So that you're going in and you're filing a lawsuit. You go into the clerk whether you're going in this case you would be going into the federal court, the district court, and filing it as a lawsuit into the court along with summonses for all the parties that are involved, all the people that are uh, adverse parties need to be summoned uh, with, you know, uh, that they're being sued. Then they have to respond. And if they don't, you win. Mm, okay. Did, um, has, has anyone on the call brought up any question about, like, notice of removal tonight? Because well, I was wondering if, if they have or have not. Um, how does this uh, work in addition to the notice of removal from, like, state court to federal court? Well, again, you're trying to accomplish something that, you know, getting it removed from the state court to the federal court, there's going to be jurisdictional issues. There's going to be, you know, the state's going to have to settle over the whole case, file to the federal government in a, rem in a removal. The federal government will look at what's in And if none of your paperwork got in, or if it's, some of it's not there and it's missing, they're only getting what's on the record of that case. But all of it has to go to the federal court. The federal court will look at it, and they'll either rule on it or they'll remand it back to the state court. The declaratory judgment action is a lawsuit that you're filing against them. 
you're the plaintiff, they're the defendant. It is 100% totally separate, but you're going to be asking all of the questions that will get your property back, your children back, okay, and have your rights declared once and for all, okay, and in the form of an injunction. Now you bring that injunction back, your injunctive relief back to that other court, and you de- and again in the federal court you're going to demand that your uh, that your children be released back to you. Um, in your other case where it's child support, the same thing. This is a Title IV D thing. So in the federal court you're in the right ju- excuse me you're in the right jurisdiction there because Title IV D is a federal program that the states administrate. So they have original jurisdiction on uh, because it's a Title IV-D situation in, in child support. And again, you have the right to raise your kids however you want, and you also have the right not to have to pay the court uh, monies that should be going to your children. Exactly. Again, you word, you word it however you want, but again, you don't have to, you know, you can rescind any contracts or supposed contracts. There's a lot you can do with it. <laughs> And you have it declared. Once you go through the documents, and you'll you'll see how it can be used, and be creative. I mean, it's your case. It's your everybody's everybody's situation is going to be a little different, no matter what. And you can use this as a as a uh, foundational uh, tool. <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> you know, to get your action going. And if you do need extra help, uh, Daniel and I are happy to uh, to help you with that. Um, and again, that would be for donation because we put a lot of time into these uh, documents <laughs> <laughs> provided this call to try and explain it as best as possible. Um, but that, you know, again, everybody is coming from wherever they're at in their understanding of declaratory judgments and uh, we're help. We're happy to help um, with more instruction and filing and all those things. <laughs> but I believe most of the information that you're asking, <laughs> man, sorry. Oh, give me one second. I'm catching my breath. Yeah. All of the answers to your questions would be uh, on this recording. And I will get that to you here as soon as as soon as it comes in after we hang up from this call. Um, and then again, you got my number, Frank. You can always call me if you have other questions. Once you, you know, once you go back through and, and listen to the call, um, we we can take it from there. But you should have everything that you need uh, after listening to the recording to at least get uh, get the ball rolling in your case. Yep, definitely. Definitely. I wanted to say that because um, Ed brought it up also, like. Because I was on the call when Tisha, had, you know, mentioned regarding in her um, in her uh, law school class um, that she had asked that uh, instructor about the property or about the children being a property, and, and she confirmed it, you know, about being that um, biological property. So, so on my on this document that I um, drafted a couple of weeks ago, I, I I stopped using the word children, um, and also I stopped I didn't I didn't use the word offspring. I just referred to them as property, property. Yeah, property, yeah. your heirs, 
the progeny, yep. they're all the same. That's, yeah, that's in there too. I got I got that into it. Actually, years ago, that's how I referred to them was my was my um, heirs uh, and progeny to my to my estate. Yeah. Yep. 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 So that works too. Well, great. Well, thank you. Yeah, absolutely. If anybody wants to know about the abatement, um, they can. You can read it in uh, Genesis chapter eight, verses seven through eleven. The original abatement. <laughs> Thanks, Linda. Yes, you're welcome. Any other questions, comments? We're going to wrap it up here in a couple minutes. What were, so, the, uh, what were the verses? What were the verses? Um, 7 through 11. Thank you. Because Noah tried it with one bird, a raven, and that is symbolic of um, a shadow. And, well, anyway, you'll just have to read it. Uh, he starts with sending off a raven, and it's wrong. It's the wrong document. And then he sends a dove, and he sends it three times and at three different weeks. And it tells that about that whole process. Uh, no, that's the um, Geneva. It's the Bible, comma, Geneva, 1760. And you can find it uh, on archive.org, and it's under God or Heavenly Father, uh, one of the two, I don't know which. And they're both searchable, only they're minus a couple of pages out of Ezekiel um, that, I, that I managed to find. But it's pretty much there. Right. <laughs> Except for those pages in Ezekiel. <laughs> those you have to actually read through instead of be searchable. Yeah. All right. All right. Any other but you questions? Can find... Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to tell everybody that they can find the original abatement uh, in symbolism, in symbolic form, because I read a lot of symbolism into the Bible. Um, that's that's where it shows up first. Um, I, I don't know, because it is an Old Testament thing, I don't know how, how um, effective it is, except I know an abatement from the Bible is different than abatement from the civil courts. But it's very similar to the administrative process. Yes. Notice, default, and judgment. Yeah. All right. Well, guys, thank you very much for joining me tonight. I hope you enjoyed the call. I did. Um, we will be having our Wednesday call this week. And, uh, again, if anybody is uh, 
needs to get a hold of me, you can reach me at afreemaninbabylon at gmail.com, or you can go to the website, bulletproofsolutions.org. Um, right now, I am having issues on the site with my secure uh, certificate and the server side, which I'm hoping to get worked out tomorrow with uh, GoDaddy. But you can go on the website still. Uh, it'll say this site is not secure or whatever, but you can get on. Um, that's bulletproofsolutions.org. Thanks again, guys, for, for listening and participating tonight. Uh, if you have any questions or anything, feel free to shoot me an email, and uh, I, will, I will answer them for you. Thanks again. Have a great night.